you know, and I heard some moaning, looked over the railroad tracks, and there was a, uh, two bodies. It, it turns out to be dad and son. The son was still alive. Duct tape, flex cuff behind. Dad was shot twice in the back. The son was shot once. The, sh- the son was still alive. It would be like that. People would always be finding bodies all over Miami. Giving the takedown signal, which was always run your hands through the hair. And I would, you know, I would get back in my car and I would say, take him down. He's got five keys. So we would take him down, offer him a deal right there. But you get these five keys. Oh, I got him from this apartment. Let's go. Go to the apartment, knock on the door. Can I help you? Miami Day Police. We'd like to do a consent search. I had a concept, but I didn't I don't I didn't understand fully what that meant. Right. I didn't know as a kid that he's going out there pretending to be a bad guy. You know, I just knew that he was taking bad guys still off the streets, but just in a different capacity. Like he wasn't in uniform anymore. Still thought it was cool because I knew he was still a cop, but it was just a different. I didn't I still hadn't quite understood yet what that meant. So we took him down. Sure enough, he had four murder warrants out of Detroit. That's what he was doing. That's what he's doing. He's killing drug dealers and t- basically ripping them off. And he told me when we took him back to the office, he's like, you know, I was going to kill you. That's why I was trying to get you to my car. I was going to shoot you and put you in the trunk of, of my car and steal your car because that's what he would be doing up there. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back, ATO family. The word family is taking a very literal meaning for today's show and with this guest and the co-host, we'll be taking the listener back in time to a time of Ronald Reagan shouting, tear down this wall, the introduction of a new deadly virus to the world being made aware that Rick Astley never going to give you up. He will never let you down. He will never run around or desert you. To a time when we watched Tubbs and Crockett in their stylish attire bust cocaine dealers in Miami. We watched the rise of the hairbands, birth of video games, and the Rubik's Cube. However, while all this was going on, there was an epidemic in Miami. A war being waged. The Miami Drug Wars. Miami became a pipeline from Columbia to U.S. and the cocaine flowed in. And the violence followed. Today's guest found himself right in the middle of the storm. 
as he witnessed how evil this trade and the people involved could be. This guest walked that thin blue line in the sunshine state, risking his life daily and facing some of the most violent people in Miami. ATO listeners, Omar coming. Omar, thank you for joining us on the ATO stage. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, when the Candy uh, Twins get said, hey, they want to get their dad on, I was like, man, I, you didn't. that's a no-brainer. Especially they talked about you. I'm not sure if you, you heard their episode. Yes, I did. Uh, yeah, it was long. Yeah, and uh, we had, imagine what we edited out you didn't hear the, of all the shit talking they did. I'm sure they yeah, talked yeah. a lot of shit. Yeah, about you. So now is your chance. He's sitting here. So I'll, I'm going to take this opportunity to welcome on a guest co-host because in my intro I talked about family taking a literal meaning in this episode. Uh, we have the great Sergeant Brian Candelaria. Or is it Gabe? Is it Gabe? Come on, man. No, okay, no, sorry. It's Brian. <laughs> you can't tell him apart? Yeah, yeah he can't. No, he's, 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 no, and I really can't. Yeah, I can't. okay, buddy. <laughs> um, Pretty hard taking them apart when they were little. Oh, I bet. No, hell, it, yeah. yeah. No, it, I love I've it. always been the cooler one. He, he knows. <laughs> you're, he's like, you're, that's Brian. Well, I can tell. The listeners from <laughs> y'all's episode knows that you like to steal identity, so. I know. You know? I uh, plagiarize a little too yeah, much. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> All right, you know, I have to say, Omar, I've, I've been, I've been super excited. We were supposed to record back the week of November of last year, Thanksgiving, yes, I and remember, then yes. we had to back out, and now finally we're getting this going. And I watched Cocaine Cowboys, the documentary, uh, this this week to to prep for this, and you know that's going to be a. And I've talked about it before in these in other episodes of that documentary. Have you seen that documentary? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's that's that's so good, and I can't imagine having somebody that was right in the middle of that of that war that was uh fun times yeah fun times in miami and you survived and you, i mean i'm gonna get into some parts of that uh that i forgot about and we'll, we'll kind of work through it okay absolutely. but we're gonna start off like we always do um i want to talk about you uh growing up in in cuba so the weird thing is i don't remember much i remember probably seven years old and forward before seven i don't remember a whole lot i don't even. I remember going I to say school old age. <laughs> yeah, yeah hey. i remember going to school uh i remember my parents especially my dad uh he was a doctor in cuba um i remember him telling me what we talk in in our house you don't discuss with anybody and the only person you trust is the four people in this room and that's it you don't talk about what you eat. You don't talk about what we, and nothing. Nothing is discussed outside of of this house. So I remember my dad back in in the late '60s. Um, he was always trying to get us out of Cuba. Um, later on, as in a, you know, as I got older, I you know, he told me the whole story. Basically, he uh, he was a doctor, uh, gangrene specialist, peripheral vascular disease specialist, saved some. Some guy's leg from being cut. Uh, they were going to cut his leg off. And my dad told him, if you trust me, yes. And he said, everybody out of the room. He saved the guy's leg. And the guy said, Doc, whatever you need, you tell me. And my dad said, well, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to tell you something. You may throw me in prison. I need to get my kids out of Cuba before the age of 13. Because in Cuba, at 13, they knock on your door. And they take your kids. And they start indoctrinating them into communism. 
Weren't they sending him to Russia? Some of them? No, they were sending him to Angola. That's okay. where this guy got his leg blown off in Angola. Fidel Castro was trying to uh, instill communism in Angola. He tried in Bolivia, but they killed uh, Che Guevara. Uh, not che, yeah, Che. Yeah, that's when. They, so he was always trying to instill communism around the world, and Angola was one of the places that they would send 15, 17-year-old Cuban kids to, to fight. Just for the listener, uh, Russia's nowhere near Angola either. It was a good whatever, try, No, for whatever reason, I thought they were also sending kids to study the manifesto in Russia. If, so if Gabe was here, he would have got that one right. <laughs> I, yeah, you're right. I would have copied Gabe on that one. Like, Gabe, what do you write down? <laughs> Brian doesn't realize this is another intervention for him. That yeah. we, we're getting your father involved now. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, yeah, so that's, you know, growing up, you, 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 know, you went to school, and, you know, the teachers on purpose would tell you, you know, just like they do here, hey, uh, write a little one sentence, what you ate last night for dinner. So my dad would always tell me, white rice, two fried eggs. Wow. Even though we had a steak. If we had a steak, my mother had to close the windows so the smell wouldn't go out because in Cuba, you have to make lines. I remember standing in lines, maybe a mile, quarter of a mile long. They give you a notebook, it's almost like a passport. And you get to the supermarket, you know, family of four, Carrillo family of four, God brings, you know, 10 pounds of rice, five pounds of beans, you know, little tub of lard, um, eggs, maybe a dozen eggs, two chickens, and okay, they stamp it, don't come back till next month. So you had to, so my father was always, uh, back in Cuba, you know, they had, they, they made uh, house calls, doctors made house calls, so they, he had his medical bags, but he had two sets. One was, you know, he had his medical equipment, and the other one he it was basically my uh, one of my uncles lined it up with plastic, so he would go to people's ranches that he would cure, and they would give him pork, ham, cheese, homemade cheese. I remember him bringing it, and you know, he's like, "We gotta eat it, you know, gotta eat it all. You only bring home what you can eat that day because you don't want the G two knocking your door down, searching your house. G two is a uh, Fidel secret police, like a Gestapo type. Yeah, yeah, okay. And they would search your house, and if they find ten pounds of lard, well, where'd you get it from? And you're going to prison. So my dad's protege, the guy that, that trained my dad on his uh, uh, training for his peripheral vascular disease, he was trying to overthrow Castro. Um, and he was just having meetings with other doctors in my dad's office because my dad worked with him. But he would always tell my dad, you go home, you have a family, you go home. His kids were in Spain because he sent his kids ahead. Sure enough, they infiltrated, somebody put a body bug, whatever it was, infiltrated that meeting, and he got 30 years. So he went in in 69 and came out, whatever, 30 years later, Damn. You know, in his 70s. So that's, it was very hard living. Couldn't trust your friends. You know, one time, uh, like my dad would bring, I used to love chiclets, you know, gum. So he would tell us, chew it in the house, and that's it. One time I went to school and I had gum in my mouth. And the teacher was like, what's that in your mouth? And I swallowed it, and I took a rubber band. I was a really good liar at the age of eight. (laughs) Took a rubber band, I said, it's a rubber band. No, no, grab you by the ear, put you to the office. Two guys in suits show up, we're going to search your house. They took me home, knocked on my mom's door. She opened the door, you know. We suspect he was chewing gum. We're searching the house. My mom was like, go ahead. They searched the apartment. Nothing. Okay. Leave him here. You know, my mom says, yeah, just leave him here. School's almost out. So of course, when they left, you know, looked at my mom, started bawling, you know, because my dad would always tell me, if we get caught, 
your mom and I are going to prison. You'll never see us. You'll never see us. So I was like, man. So All for gum. All for gum. Oh, yeah, you couldn't have anything that said made in USA. Nothing. So the cartoons that we used to watch in Cuba were all either Russian or Chinese. I remember watching a lot of Japanese and Chinese movies, Samurai, because that's all you can see. Once in a while, you would take your antennas and play with them, and you could get Mighty Mouse out of Miami. Speaking Russian. <laughs> yes, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so everything was, everything was controlled. State. Yeah, was a- everything was controlled. What you saw on TV, what you heard on the radio, everything was controlled. <clears throat> um, so so you, your, your father had just a, a unique profession, and, and uh, was he kind of a rarity? And did, in that field, yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So did the government, did, did he did he have a bad relationship or just no relationship with the government? It seemed like he, him having such a specialty, they would honestly make him, force him to into service. For, did that well, ever come into play? The service was you're going to be a doctor and you're going to treat patients, maybe get paid $30 a month, you know? Not a whole lot, I mean... What he had was, you know, he had a 1954 beautiful Cadillac convertible that he bought when he graduated from med school. So he kept that. But the house, everything, the government took everything from us. So we moved into an apartment. But, um, I mean, you couldn't have a bank account because it's not yours. So the government in Cuba basically tells you nothing belongs to you, including your children, your house. So you don't pay mortgage, you don't pay for your light, you don't pay for your water. Everything is given to you, but nothing is yours, including your children, because at 15, we're coming to get them. So my dad, that individual that he saved his leg, basically told him, hey, I need you to help me with this. So the guy trusted my dad, and my dad, you know, he he started asking my dad for bribe money. I need money so I can bribe this individual in Cuba. The only way you leave Cuba is by a lottery number. So he would take our number for the Carrillo family and move it up, and then pay somebody else to move it up. So it took nine years. My, I still have my Cuban passport. I was probably eight months old when my father was trying to get us out of Cuba. So he would always think, okay, if I can't get the whole family, at least get my kids out through the Catholic Church. So he figured, I want you guys to go to the United States. So he had a British guy from the British embassy come to our house once a week and teach us English, which is kind of weird because we kind of learned British English. So he would, you know, like the trunk of a car. Cheerio. Was, yeah. Trunk of the car pish, was, pish you know, the, the, the boot and yeah. the bobbies. And so I remember getting to Miami and being in fourth grade with Mrs. Williams. I'll never forget her, you know, and, <laughs> you know, stand up and introduce herself. So I stand up and I say, you know, my name is Omar Carrillo and I have this British accent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, my one of one of the guys that became my best friend, Ricky Smith, looked at me like, why are you talking like that? And so we kind of, I taught him all the bad words in Spanish, and he taught me how to talk proper English, American English. But, so yeah, so we ended up, one day he showed up and he said, uh, always have a bag packed, one bag, no jewelry, you can't take any jewelry with you, uh, can't take any money with you, have one bag packed, carry on, I'm going to take you to, the, to an airplane, to the airport, put you on a plane, and you're out of Cuba. Well, where are we going? I don't know. I'm just going to put you on a plane. So sure enough, nine years later, you know, he knocked on the door. He said, on a Wednesday, he said, Friday, I'm picking you up. Um, 
and I'm taking you to the airport. So he did. Um, we got to the airport. I was nine years old, you know. I was always hanging around my dad. My brother was always hanging out with my mom. So I would see that my dad was nervous. So I was always like, you know, what's going on? What's going on? So this guy just bypasses through all the, you know, the officials, sat us on a plane. And my dad said, where are we going? He said, I don't know, out of Cuba. I don't know. So we didn't know if we were going to Germany, Russia, China, South America. We know we weren't coming to the United States because there was no direct flights. Fidel cut that off in 64. So we got there. Plane started, you know, loading up with people. It was a propeller plane, by the way. And then taxi out, took off. Pilot says, okay, we'll be in Spain in 14 hours. So my dad took a deep breath and Flight attendant came by, you know, can I get you something to drink? And I'll never forget, he said, I want a double Johnny Walker on the rocks. And, man, he, like, he had white knuckles because he was afraid to, to fly. Kind of relaxed a little bit, and sure enough, 14 hours later, we landed in Spain. So growing up like that, how did you view the United States? Like, was propaganda pretty heavy and, and U.S. was bad? or No. Nope. How did you guys see that? Saw it as a... Anything out of Cuba was, to me, was a gift. I mean, we got to Spain and, you know, eat ham and cheese and octopus or whatever you wanted. Chew all the gum you want. Chew all the gum you want, <laughs> you know? Yeah, chew all the chicken. It's like want. drink, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, whatever you mm-hmm. wanted to drink, which in Cuba you didn't have it. You know, it's like, wow, this is awesome, you know? And so when we landed in Spain, we only, we didn't have that much money. Um, then my dad was like, hey, take your shoe off. So I take my shoe off. So I took my shoe off, and he took a butter knife and took the heel off. My one of my uncles was a cobbler. He used to make shoes, so he hollowed out the heel of my shoe, and there was 150 U.S. dollars there. So he had we had 150 dollars. The from what I remember in the talk, Spanish government gave us an apartment, some money, and they said, "Okay, this will sustain you for a month. After a month, you got to pay for it." So my dad started calling friends in Miami, help us out. You know, how much do you need? Hey, just $150 a month. That's all we need to survive in Spain. This is 19, yeah, May 20th, 1969. So, you know, we survived there for six months. And my dad was studying to get his medical, you know, pass his medical boards. But they couldn't practice in Spain, even if he would have passed his medical boards because he wasn't a Spanish citizen. You have to be a citizen. So um, a friend of his who was a, um, had, British dual citizenship with British. His name was uh, passed away as a psychiatrist. Uh, Wilt Lances, funny guy. He wrote a petition to the U.S. Embassy. You know, it's a thousand doctors in Spain. We want to go to the United States and be productive. Please give us a visa. So sure enough, like two months later, hey, you know, you're out of here. So we ended up in, in we went in uh, Madrid, New York. Uh, there were some friends of my dad that wanted him to stay in New York. We got there. It was like 50 degrees. My dad said, bullshit. <laughs> yeah. It's too cold. <clears throat> Let's go to Miami. Only 50. Yeah. yeah. He's like, yeah. Well, he remember, we're coming part. from the Caribbean where, yeah. you know, a cold spell is probably 70. Yeah. So landed in New York. We were there for two weeks. And then he said, let's go to Miami. So we ended up in Miami with another family that, that was helping us out. And uh, they also had, I remember they had a ranch in Cuba. And that's where my dad used to go and get pork and chicken and you know in the black market you know because you couldn't slaughter any animals because they didn't belong to you you can paint you can maintain the pigs the cows and stuff like that but you know you can't sell anything and you can't slaughter it 
But that's how my dad would do it. They would do it behind the government's back and then bury the, the carcass, you know. Um, and it was right by a Russian base. You know, I remember my dad used to always trade the Russians uh, vodka for, for, uh, for food. So your whole family, you basically had to live in a constant hypervigilant state. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and then, you know, and then that's going to be for you. That's going to kind of carry over to you as an adult in the profession you chose. Absolutely. You I know? think it made me a, of course made me very. Uh, and it, we're we're gonna, we're not getting into it just yet, but even like you, the type of work you did, mm-hmm. yes, it, it probably uh, you had to play a role in even being a just a citizen in Cuba. You had to play a role to survive. That's Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, every neighborhood had a, almost like a crime watch, but it was called El Comité, the committee. And they were uh, communists. And if they would see anything suspicious in your house, they would report you to the G2s. And then they would raid your house. I mean, they don't need a search warrant. They just come in, kick your door down, and why are you guys having a party? Where'd you get this food from? You know, boom, you're gone. And you get arrested, discharged, basically. It was oh, yeah. it li- basically it, it would be you would be charged with treason. Treason. Wow. It, it sounds know? like I mean everything. I've read, Nazi Germany. I mean, just the, oh, just, yeah. is, the, yeah. the Gestapo. Oh, you yeah. had the super the SS that come in and just. Yeah. Raid, no no rules. No it rules. Just, yeah. No rules. I mean, you, they, not for them. You're sentenced you? 30 years. You get arrested on a Monday, on a Wednesday, you get you get sentenced. What happened to the trial? Yeah, no trial at all, huh? No, <laughs> no, no due was. process. Just You know, and then, you're, then they wouldn't see you for 30 years. That's it's like, boom, you're gone. Yeah. When you get to Miami, did did your did your father start? Uh, he, he picked up his, his profession, his doctor no, profession? No, uh, that was rough. We got to Miami. And we lived in a three-bedroom house, um, 12, 12 people in a three-bedroom house. Every it was uh, it was three couples. We every couple had two boys because we all grew up together in Cuba, kind of almost the same age. So my brother and I slept in sleeping bags. My mother and my dad slept slept in a uh, if you want to call it a full-size bed. We thought it was fun. It was camping. Hey, you know, you were you. From what you went from to... It was to, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, got up every morning, went to school, you know. When my dad had a little bit of money, I was able to buy a bike for $5, you know, paint it myself, and that was my transportation to you school. You had freedom. I had, You oh had my freedom gosh. compared to... Yeah. Yes, my dad worked at a hospital tr- while he was uh, in the OR, you know, uh, knew very little English, so it was very hard for him to even communicate in the hospital he bought his first car was like a 1965 ford falcon it was smoke coming out of the tailpipe you know i remember those but he needed to get to to work my mother worked in a factory sewing and you know made a little bit of money and we moved down the street to a one bedroom one bath uh duplex and that was in 16 that was uh, 1970 so we we lived with that. That was 1970 to 1973. We lived with them for almost two years. And then we lived in that duplex for three years. We lived in that duplex from 1973 to 1976. And then my dad bought his first and only house That's right. in 1976. I remember $55,000. And he thought it was a lot of money. $55,000. Yeah. <laughs> And at the time, for him, it was hard because he had just started his, his practice. And I remember him and my mom would work Monday through Saturday. And sometimes it would be 8 o'clock at night, and they wouldn't be home. So my mother would call me, hey, you know, can you start dinner? And I was like, yeah, sure. 
So I would start, you know, rice, beans, whatever my dad would cook, you know, meat. But sometimes it was 8, 9 o'clock before we ate dinner. And then I, then I started to learn how to cook because I had to go to school. My brother couldn't cook. He couldn't boil water if life depended on him. So he was Sounds like Gabe. He depended on me. <laughs> Way to kick so, Gabe and poor Gabe in the crotch while he's not here. Yeah, that's sad. So you were you were there in the uh, in Miami, the Larry Zonka era, and absolutely. also the, uh, the, uh, the 72 Dolphins, the perfect season. And I was not a Dolphins fan. You were fan. not a Dolphins fan. We're, I am a Raiders fan. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. Well, thank you for coming on, and uh, we appreciate your time. <laughs> I'm Jack Lee. <laughs> First football game I saw was the Dolphins against the Raiders. And, and you fell in Raiders love with were, that. The Raiders were kicking their butt, and I said, who's that black team? I like that black team. And the quarterback, well, I'll never forget, was uh, – Stabler? No, Kenny? it was uh, Dale LaMonica. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he. I think he did a swim through Dallas at one point. Yeah, it, yeah it was, I mean, yeah. He, was, I'm talking mm-hmm. – you know, this was like 1970, you know, black and white TV, <laughs> you know. John and, Madden wasn't a coach there, was he? No, yeah, it, I couldn't remember who okay. the coach was. So I've, I've always liked the Raiders. And what I do you started, think about them moving to Vegas? Uh, Meh. I mean, it's okay. I think they've I mean, At least they've, they've kept they've the name. At least the they, yeah, they haven't, they haven't been any good for a while. <laughs> they lost to Tampa Bay in the Super Bowl, and then I got to hear it from my other son. Oh, you know, that's Omar. Omar, Omar. Yeah, he's a Tampa a bu- Bay he, fan, so what, 30 years later, he's still reminding me. So Yeah, he's probably going to be unhappy this coming up season. Oh, Brady. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was hoping Omar would be here too, so we could because uh, I used to uh, I used to enjoy playing him and whipping him in fantasy football. Omar, if you're That's listening, right. yeah, I miss yeah. that. That's right. He, I think he's still playing that. Yeah, you know that these guys were all born on the same day. You know that, right? No, the twins and Omar were born on the same day, seven years apart. Exactly. Exactly seven years apart. That's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah. Damn, I wish. Uh, it was shout hard, out Omar, it was man. Hard I wish having br- having parties because you have to have a <laughs> just a big ass party. Party for these guys, and then a party for you know <laughs> at different ages too. Oh yeah, for teens and then oh, you yes. a seven year old. Oh yes, yes, yeah. These guys were brutal. So were the twins wearing like the little the little party hats for the seven year old uh, at their own party? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're just having to put up with it. You know, they had it on sideways. Yeah. Oh yeah, they had <laughs> it on oh, sideways. Yeah, yeah. the island boys. These guys were terrorists growing up. Oh, I can't we're, gonna, we're gonna get into that. <laughs> oh let's get gosh, yeah, let's, let's jump right into that. They're, they're terrorists right now. So, when you were in Miami, um, going from a military state, basically in a controlled state, and a fear of anybody in authority, when you get to the United States uh, and you're in Miami, um, did you have any interactions with police? And what was your were you was there a fear there? Just what you kind of carried over nope, from Cuba? not at all. My, okay. our, as a matter of fact, our next-door neighbor was the chief of police for the city of Miami. Oh, well, damn. I can't remember his name, but I remember he was a big guy. He was must have been like 6'5", good 280. I mean, and he drove this old Plymouth with this huge long antenna, and I would always see him coming out. Um, he never wore a uniform. <laughs> Always see him plain clothes with his gun, and I was like, "Wow, that's so cool!" And I used to, I used to um, started basically, you know, can I mow your lawn, you know, for five dollars? Yeah, sure, just so I can make a little extra money and buy my bike. And then we moved out of that neighborhood into another neighborhood, so I lost touch with him. But then we moved into this neighborhood, and I was in middle school or maybe elementary, and my neighbor across the street was a city of Miami motor man. 
and his sister, I remember his sister was had pup, um, poodles, and they gave us a poodle. And uh, she was pretty hot, too. And we used to, my brother and I used to always, like, mm, check her out, you know, that kind of stuff, because she would s- sit outside ba- sunbathing. You know, little lounge chair. We were right like, we were like twelve. I think Got we were like more twelve. Poodles? Yeah, hey, can you have any more poodles I can come see? So yeah, so we ended up with the poodle from them. But <laughs> he was a motorman, so I always looked up to him. Like, oh man, I, and he would bring his motorcycle home, and I was like, that I was just like, wow, that is awesome. And then I started watching, you know, Adam Twelve on TV and all those other cop shows, and I thought it was the coolest thing, you know. Yeah, well, you because you you. Grew up watching Russians speaking Mighty Mouse, and now you're able to actually watch a watch, true law enforcement program. Watch, yeah, some um, some TV in, in, in English, English. <laughs> some TV in English. Shocker, yeah, and not in Chinese. It's weird with yeah, subtitles on the bottom. So I want to I want to kind of segue into you had early influence from the chief of police, and then the motor uh, the motor officer that you yes. did you kind of did that get you interested in maybe that's something you want to do as a profession no i would always look at that as awesome but i would always tell my dad i remember ever since i was a little kid i would tell my dad um i want to be a doctor i'm gonna be a doctor just like you nothing wrong with that i'm gonna be a doctor just like you i'm gonna be a doctor just like you um and then growing up uh always thought about that i want to be a doctor i want to be a doctor went to high school the guy across the street, uh, well, we we moved, but he was already a DEA agent. The motorman went to the, and joined DEA. So his mother and his sister used to kind of tell us, uh, you know, uh, about not everything he would do, but what he was doing. At the time, I think it was called Bureau of Narcotics. I don't think it was called DEA. Yeah, probably not. And then I never saw him again. You know, they moved out. I never saw him well, again. Yeah, the federal gig, they they get moved around yeah, all over the place. Never saw him again. Then we moved. Never heard from him again um, until later on in my life because he was still a patient of my dad's. Um, and then we moved kind of away from there. We moved to this other part of town close to FI, uh, Florida International University. Like I said, my dad bought his first and only house in 1976. So we moved there, and I started going to high school. Coral Park. Miami Coral Park Senior High School, home of the Rams. All right. Shout out Rams. It's still there? It's still there. Okay. It was uh, predominantly Jewish high school. Was it a magnet school? No. No. That's no. There was no magnet schools like at the time. Nothing for sissies? No. 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 Just, just had to go to public school, just huh? public school. We were magnet school, school gangsters, remember? There were a couple of private schools, but you couldn't. we couldn't afford that. So when you, when you, you went to college and then... And then you got an interest in you. To, no, what, what actually, got you, so, what? so I was working at a hospital. I was an orderly, okay. taking patients to and from the rooms for the CAT scan department. The CAT scan was owned by a doctor friend of my bro, my dad's, and that's how I got the job. Because I, I was like, okay, my brother went to med school, yeah, and then I kind of went to visit him in, in Dominican Republic, and I was like, I don't think I want to do this. I don't, I don't want to sit behind a desk all day long. I've never been the type to sit. You know, maybe my ADD kicks in, whatever. So I was like, what do I do? So one day I was in high school. I used to always go back to my high school, old high school, and see my old basketball coach and play basketball and help out with the team and stuff like that. And uh, we would, you know, after practice, all the old guys, I would say old guys, we were in our 20s or 18s. We were playing basketball, and this friend of mine, Alex Alvarez, who was a neighbor that lived just on the other block of us, 
he joined Miami Dade Police. And I was like, hey, Alex, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm, you know, I'm working for Miami Dade. I said, really? In uniform? He goes, yeah, you want to ride with me? I was like, absolutely. So I said, what shift do you work? He goes, uh, four to midnight. I said, great. What neighborhood? He goes, oh, I'm in Northwest District, which is up there by, uh, by the stadium. It's, you know, really rough neighborhood. I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'll ride with you. So signed the paperwork, rode with him. Um, loved it. Loved it. He got into so much shit. You know, and Alex, uh, good, I'll tell you later on about Alex. The guy was just amazing. Um, man, he used to get into so much shit. And Alex was probably, we used to call him, as a, fact, as a matter of fact, his nickname was Nightstick. He was that thin. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I was thin. thinking it was for another reason. No. But okay. Super thin. So he, you know, I rode with him. I came home and I started thinking. I was like, you know, that's something I'm going to do. So I didn't tell my dad. I went. Next day, I went, you know, next uh, college semester, went and started taking criminal justice classes. And I loved it. Loved it. What about it? What, what, what drew you in? That adrenaline rush. I mean, it was just, to me, it was an adrenaline rush. One, two, I looked at it as, and that's, you know, it's a pretty honorable profession, helping the community. Uh, again, you're watching, you know, all these cop shows on TV and you're, you know, the camaraderie that goes on. I saw that, you know, when I rode with Alex, because then I rode several times with them. And just the camaraderie. The brotherhood, and I was like, yeah. Brotherhood, I was like, man, this is awesome, you know. I had friends that would always, in, you know, play basketball with me, and they were like, hey, why don't you join the military with us? And I was like, nah, I'm going to join the police department. So, And I did. So joined the police department. I got hired right after the McDuffie riots. So in 1980, yeah, uh, McDuffie was a guy in a motorcycle, uh, African-American, riding a motorcycle, bad out of hell. Uh, officers chase him. They, he crashes. What happens after the crash? Uh, obviously, back then, there's no cell phones, there's no cameras, but basically, he, he ends up with several skull fractures. So, um, you know, the officers get indicted. It was five of them. They get indicted. They, they can't do the trial in Miami, so they do the trial in Tampa. They go to trial. They get acquitted. And Miami burns to the ground. At the time, I think the city of Miami maybe had 300 officers. In Miami-Dade, Metro-Dade, back then it was called Metro-Dade, had maybe 800. And I remember hearing the stories that the crowd, the rioters, took over the police station, the city of Miami police station. And that was frightening because I remember... The, also hearing that they broke into the uh, Army Reserve uh, Armory and they stole a bunch of rifles, which was in that, you know, it was in a really bad neighborhood, which it was right around the college, right around the where the police academy was. Our police academy was in a college, so you got college credits when you graduated. So when I graduated from the police academy, I had almost my two-year degree. So um, I joined. I remember during the riots, I went out and bought a 30-30, put it in the trunk of my car and we used to drive up to Fort Lauderdale to go party. And I remember having the gun in the trunk of my car and driving down 836 going up to Fort Lauderdale and seeing the smoke from the buildings burning. And then getting to Fort Lauderdale, you know, you party with your friends back then, you can drink, you know, if you're over the age of eight, you know, 18 and up. And then I remember calling home and my dad telling me, don't come home because 836 and 826, they're blocking it because snipers are shooting people on the road. So we just stayed in Fort Lauderdale for like two or three days, 
came back home like on a Monday or Tuesday. And hung I was like, over. Yeah, yeah. hung over. Oh, gosh. Back in. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So then it was the, like. Going through the fog or smoke. Yeah. yeah. But it was like, after that, I was like, I'm joining. And I joined. I remember I had just turned 21. I joined and took the test. And I got hired. What year was that? January of 1980. Okay. And at the time, the federal government had, must have been pumping a lot of money to Dade County to increase their police department because they had an academy class back to back. I mean, I remember it was like, it was at the college and the whole college, everybody was in uniform. And like, you know, everybody else, you know, the students were like, who are these guys? Because we basically took over Miami-Dade Community College, North Campus. It was amazing. You know, it's just amazing because um, it was not only us, but it was the city of Miami, Miami Beach. Metro Day was the largest, still is the largest mm -hmm. in, in Florida. But it was just amazing. So so what size were your academy class? Oh, gosh. We started with, I want to say, 94 or 96 Ooh. individuals. Damn. And little by little, they dwindled it down to about maybe 70, 78 graduated. That's still a, that's yeah, a strong a number. That's yeah. strong. Oh, it was ridiculous. It was, I mean, we, these classrooms were just. <laughs> they hired anybody. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. So they talked a little bit about the, because then that's when the, uh, the the cocaine and the drug rise. So the standards for for the uh, the department, it was like, he said something like it was, you couldn't use cocaine within. Like, well, they, they lowered the standards. Yeah. Um, I think some departments did lower the standards. I know that I don't think Miami Dade lowered their standards. Okay. The city of Miami, uh, they 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 had some issues. Like like you couldn't have used cocaine. Started as you couldn't use cocaine in twenty four hours or, or like it, yeah, <laughs> it was it was pretty. I don't know how you know what type of physicals or how right. the hiring process was, but I know that they needed bodies. They needed people they just in needed there. bodies, yeah. and if you can breathe, you know you're in. Uh, I you remember, don't have cocaine all over your nose when you're yeah, interviewing yeah, your hired. Yeah, I remember, you know, back then it was your height had to be height according to weight. You couldn't be 5'2 and weigh 300 pounds. <laughs> yeah. Height according to weight, and then they, they did away with that with that rule. Um, so there was a lot of issues, you know, and we would see it. Even in the academy, we would see, not that we were separate, but we would see the, the difference between what the city of Miami was hiring and what Miami-Dade was hiring, almost like Miami-Dade was hiring a lot, a lot of people from out of state. Where the city of Miami were hiring a lot of people within, from the city. Mm. I mean, basically, they just, they talk in Spanish. There's no, yeah. they don't even talk in English among themselves. It was almost like, you know, very, very different. So, so What size of uh, department was Miami-Dade back then? How many sworn, you say? I'm going to say in 1980, I'm just going to take a wild guess, probably 800. Okay. And it went from 800 to 3,600. <laughs> oh, shit. And that was uh, between 80, 81. Right around 85, 86, it started tapering off a little bit. But it was a mass hiring. Same thing with the city. The city went from that to about 1,200. You know, and they had, you know, like I said, they had their issues. I'm sure that you've, you all heard about all the issues that they've had with the cops smuggling drugs and oh yeah <laughs> yeah and we're going to get in i want to get into that too uh when we start talking about 
your UC career about how there was a lot of there was a lot oh, going yeah. on. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, so yeah. when you get on in, you, you graduate in eighty one. Is that what it graduated was? November thirtieth, November sixteenth, nineteen eighty one. And by then, the kind of the the cocaine drug wars were they were ongoing. Oh, yeah. They were they were oh, kicking absolutely. up. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Oh yeah. So the cocaine war started during the Mario boat lift. Okay. So Can you, you talk got, about that. So a hundred thousand Cubans, uh, and basically what Fidel did, he just opened up his prisons and said. Here. Sick them, so, sick them, yeah. Yeah, so my mother went to Cuba to exactly. pick up my grandparents. And it was just two elderly people, both of them in their 70s. And it was she was in this huge yacht that this guy, you know, provided. Um, really nice individual. But when they got to Cuba, my mother was supposed to be there two, two weeks. She was there for two months. And Fidel, for every person you took on your boat for me for every family member you took on your boat you had to take 50 others so yes so i remember my mom calling saying okay we're on our way to key west i remember driving to key west to pick my mom and my grandparents up and i was waiting there by the docks and border patrols there and they have these lines you know right left you know one's got a bus the other one's a building where they're processing people and I see my mother's yacht coming, and I'm thinking, wow. I'm surprised that yacht, it was pretty big. It's like a 75, 80-foot yacht. You know, this guy was multi-millionaire probably. But I see all these people hanging out on the side of the boat. And I'm like, what is that? I had already seen it on TV, but I, I didn't think that they would make this guy do the same thing. So sure enough, when everybody starts getting off the boat, Border Patrol is going right. So, and they would ask, they would tell all the guys, let me see your hands in Spanish. You know, let me see your hands. They wanted to see what tattoo they had on their web of their hand. Because in Cuba, the prisoners or the prison, whether you're a rapist, child molester, a murderer, burglar, so the guards would know who they're dealing with. They tattoo the prisoners on the web of their hand. So they would, and if you had a tattoo, you were going on the bus. <laughs> straight to Chrome Detention Center and straight to either Arkansas Federal Prison or Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. They were, they never came out. They were going from prison to prison. That's it. Some of them made it out. You know, some of them, you know, made it into the streets of Miami. And that's when we ended up having the cocaine wars. Because what happened was these Cubans coming over, they didn't fear anything. They would always tell you, "What can you do to me?" They're that not Fidel, scared of What can you do yeah. to me that Fidel hasn't done to me? Yeah. So they didn't fear anything. They were killing Colombians left and right. I mean, the murder rate was the guys in homicide were making two hundred thousand dollars a year just on overtime because there was a there was a murder at least every two three hours in Miami. It was just bodies, find you know bodies all over the place. <laughs> So when you were in the hiring process, when you get you hit the streets, that was kind of y'all y'all you knew this is going to be a war, and I'm going to be a part of that. I'm going to be a soldier in this, right? Yes and no, because the okay. district that they sent me to was South. They sent me to South District, which I didn't want to go to South District because it was basically the country, and it was just a lot of farms. We did have an area that you know was sort of like Oak Cliff, so we're like okay, you know, um, and there was drugs being sold. But mostly it was like, you know, it's called the Redlands. Man, I don't want to work the Redlands. You know, you're going to get a call, you know, cow in the middle of the street, that kind of stuff. 
But I got fortunate that I was put in what's called area one, which was the hot area. So I was like, okay, that's that's where I want to be. I don't want to work area two. That's boring. So I always put in for area one, area one, area one. And that's how I started, you know, and then I started basically just, I worked in an area, you know, West Perrine. So you had US-1 dividing West Perrine from East Perrine. So it was basically predominantly black neighborhood, white neighborhood. So we would always go find dope, find drugs, you know, find, we'd see a car. I mean, back in the days, I know that you can't do it now, but profiling, profile the shit out of people. See how, you know, you see a white, white guy driving in the black neighborhood, you know, you sit on him. Watch him go to a drug house, make it by, pull him down the street. You know, he's got drugs. You know, you take him to to the station. You know, offer him a deal. You want to go yeah. talk to narcotics? Narcotics was right upstairs. So I would give up narcotics a lot of informants. Say this guy wants to cooperate. This guy wants to cooperate. So you knew he wasn't over there passing out bibles when he was over there <laughs> right. driving around. No. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There would a lot of times. Oh, I'm lost. I mean, come on, dude, really? So when you you handing narcotics to a lot of folks back then you probably got a a lot of friendships and, and relationships where they re- probably recognized you as a hard worker they did my lieutenant in uniform my first lieutenant in uniform lieutenant heckman may he rest in peace he um he went to narcotics okay so you know i kind of he recruit you oh yeah okay oh yeah as soon as i got off probation he he uh called me he goes hey uh you want to come to narcotics and i said absolutely He's like, okay, you start on Monday. <laughs> oh, no, Joao. Well, so what kind of, what, what was that narcotic unit, unit's reputation whenever you hired in there? What, oh, gosh, what were they, known they were, for? they were, I thought they were the bad asses. I mean, they had, they had a boat, you know, to go chase uh, the drug runners. Um, they had, um, they drove all these seizure cars you know i would always see them you know dressed in blue jeans or boots boots jeans and you know t-shirt there was one unit that was called the interdiction unit and they would basically work 6 p.m to 2 a.m and they would basically just douse themselves with uh skin so soft and go out to the mangroves and wait for the drug runners to come in with the uh marijuana boats and bales and i would always hear the stories oh yeah man we got into a shootout you know we shot the engine i was like I want to do that. I want to do that. <laughs> I want to get in some shit, you know? So when they asked me to go to narcotics, I said, absolutely. So then they first put me in the street squad, you know, just going to the houses yeah. by drope. I was like, I'll undercover. Do it. You're going undercover. Absolutely. Okay. So describe how, what kind of transition was that from you? And I want, before you, before you, I want to, I want you to describe the Miami Metro Dade uniform. Cause Brian, the Ken, your twins over there, they, they kind of touched on it. Can you describe the appearance of that uniform? So it's uh, brown pants, okay, with a khaki stripe down the side, okay, and a khaki uh, shirt. And what about that patch? The patch would say, "Well, gosh, I went through three, four patches." Oh wow! So uh, Metro Police, okay, Metro Dade Police. And then Miami Dade Police, and now they're changing it to, I want to say it's Dade County Sheriffs, because now they're going back to the elected sheriff, because we were the sheriffs, but they didn't want to call themselves sheriffs, even though my badge says deputy. Okay. They wanted to. They called us police officers. I'm gonna have to look at those guys, patches because you guys became a police department, where you had a director that was appointed. We had a director only because they went from a sheriff to a director because. As a director, you can't be sued. Nice. You can, and then you, the only one that can be sued if something happens is the county manager. 
because we didn't have a mayor back then. The county manager ran the county. So the, our director answered to, uh, like, Sheriff Purdy. When I got hired, it was Purdy. He retired after that, and then after that it was, I uh, can't remember his name, but he was on there for, oh, my gosh, he was the chief or the director for 20-some-odd years. So we have a few new listeners from the Massachusetts area, and I just want to clarify that khaki is a color, not car keys. They uh, they have a, a pretty heavy accent where they would think that khakis means they're car keys. Car keys. not your khakis. It's the khakis. So shout out to, to my guys up in uh, Massachusetts right now. Shout out, boys. Uh, the, the uniform, though, sense of pride? You, your, oh, absolutely. Your boy said that you always looked super absolutely. sharp. Absolutely. I made sure that I used to see guys in uniform. I was like, come on, man. You know, you're wearing the uniform. I'm about starching it. So I would send my uniforms to the dry cleaner. Always sharp. And I would always, my, my boss, my sergeant, my lieutenant would always tell me, man, you look sharp. You look sharp. You, you know, that's how it is. You're going to wear the uniform. Don't pull it out of a bottle all crumbled up. And, you know, if you're going to wear it, you know, look good. Have your hair cut, you know, don't, huh. you know. Yeah. This, this this question's for Sergeant Kendler. Can I call you Brian? Yes. Okay. Of course. Brian, so when you saw your dad come home in that uniform, what, yeah. what, what did that, that mean to you? I was just – and I've said this before in the prior podcast, but it was – I was just in awe, really. And, and I just remember being a kid, even in elementary school, just waiting for my mom to say, hey, I think your dad's going to pick you up today. And I'd be like, fuck yes like he's coming because i know he's gonna come pick me up in that squad car and that uniform and i'm like yeah you know like that's my that's my dad you know and uh no i loved it i, I thought it was amazing you've heard him talk about that i mean oh, you, you 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 know and y'all your influence on them i mean it, look look at the final product i mean i mean well gabe i'm talking yeah. about he's not here but 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 you know so but you know just you gotta take pride in that, and I and I, I mentioned some things in the intro which you have not heard yet, and then, and that is your accomplishments, and you know Omar and and Gabe and Brian. I mean that's absolutely, that's, and you've we hadn't even got into the meat of your accomplishments professionally, but but man, that's that's got to mean a lot to you. Oh, absolutely. I, like so, I I met their mother when they were three, three years old, and uh, she never told me she had twins. So she cooked dinner for me. She cooked dinner for me. And I was there watching, watching her cook. I was in narcotics at the time. I told my sergeant, hey, I'm going to go eat dinner. Call me if we have a, a drug deal to do. So these guys, his pajamas was, uh, was red. I want to say it was either Daffy Duck or Bugs Bunny. One or Bugs two. Bunny. He still and wears his brother, and his brother, Yeah, still little onesie. And his brother's was yellow. So I sat on the couch. And, you know, I mean, they're identical twins. I couldn't tell them apart. I didn't know that she had twins. And he would, one of them would look and just run out of the bedroom and just jump on me. And I was like, oh, crap, you know? You know, and then he would run back to the room. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, your son's pretty fast. And then two minutes later, the other one would run out and boom and jump at me. I was like, oh, crap, he changed. Yeah, he changed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she was just, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And then, you know, I didn't catch it. Oh, yeah, they, they, and I didn't catch it. And then finally I, I said, do you have twins? <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah. I said, can you bring them out? So they both, you know, I go, hey, guys, come out. So they all come out, and I'm like, crap. It's like these two bottles. I, I'm like, 
Holy crap. <laughs> I was like, how do you tell them apart? She goes, well, that's why I dress them. Brian always wears blue, and Gabriel was wears gray. So she can tell them apart. And I was like, oh, okay. But I also, I found, I saw Gabriel has a mole here, so I would always tell him, put your head, let me see your hair. And he would do that, and then I can tell, okay, you're Gabriel. So it took me, took me a while to figure out who they were, you know? But, um... Now we yeah. just we look at their biceps. Gabriel's are a little bit bigger. Yeah, yeah, sure. he's a little bit buffer now. Oh, man. But, no, sure. <laughs> you, Brian, sure. Brian, come back. Don't get up. Leave. But come back. No, um, no. But I'm very proud of them. These oh, guys. Yeah. I mean, I talk about these guys all the time, and you know, all my kids. I'm going to say all my kids, including Omar and my daughter in Miami. They're you know, what is her name? Uh, Christina. Okay. She's a nurse in, uh, she's a head nurse at uh, either the ER or I'm pretty sure it's the ER. Nice. Yeah. No, I, they're some of my favorite people. Yeah. And Brian, I mean, I, 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 I'm I your take, favorite person. Yes. Yeah. He's my favorite. I kick him in the balls as many times as whatever the opportunity arises, but I love these guys to death. Yeah, but, no, and I'm, I, I can't, I mean, I've already said I'm super excited for this, for sitting down with you. Uh, so I want to get into the narcotics. Okay. You get over there, you get out of that uniform. You're no longer wearing a starch uniform. You're nope. wearing starch t-shirt. I am Star- in a, I am in a <laughs> yeah. t-shirt, blue jeans. Okay. Unshaven. Yeah, which was probably way out of character for you. Oh yeah, I was shaved. How big a transition was that going from uniform, very structured, pressed clothes, and to go into that world? I know you you like messing with drugs before, but this is a different animal. This was different. So when I went to narcotics. Uh, Obviously, you know, they have to train you. So basically the training is on-the-job training. So I remember uh, Preston Lucas. I can say names, right? Oh, absolutely. Preston Lucas uh, was the guy that was training me. Uh, We used to call him Big Daddy because he would always say, Yo, Dad, Yo, Dad, Yo, Dad, Uh, smoking like a chimney. I mean, smoking like a chimney, and I don't smoke. So we had – he had a black – we had a black seizure van. It was painted black, you know, with the seats in the back and, you know, little fuzzy dice. And he would always stop everywhere for cigarettes. So I remember my first day, picks me up at the house. You know, I get my gun. I have my two-inch on my ankle. At the time, I think I was carrying my single at No, I, was, I forgot what I was carrying. I know I was carrying a semi. Um Picks me up. We go to a 7-Eleven in West Perrine. <laughs> he pulls in to go get cigarettes. I got the windows down. I have my foot on the dashboard, and I'm taking my two-inch gun, and I'm basically blowing the cobwebs out of it. <laughs> and this individual walks up to me with a bag of hash and says, hey, wait, yo, man, you want to buy some hash? I got my gun in my hand. Police radio's right there. <laughs> And I said, sure. I said, let me get the money. So I opened the door, threw him against the van, cuffed him, threw him in the back seat. Preston walks up. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, he tried to sell me some hash. I said, he's under arrest. He goes, holy crap. So we go to the station, and he tells the, the sergeant, well, this guy just made his first arrest at the 7-Eleven. Some guy sold him hash. Turned out it was eggs and oregano. <laughs> but he still did time for it, for that because he purported it to be yeah, drugs. So he still did time for it. And uh, you know, the sergeant was like, "What happened?" I told him. I said, "I was just sitting there, and he walked up, asked me if I wanted to buy drugs. I said, "Sure, let me go get the money." I opened the door, and 
threw him in the back of the van, flex cuffed him, and here we are. He goes, okay. So that night, we just went out and bought drugs. What kind of a, di- a, a different adrenaline rush was that from being in uniform, being at that level? At least you knew what you were going. You knew what you were getting into. You know, in uniform, you stop a car, you don't know what's, what's going on. Here you know, okay, I'm going to go buy drugs, um, you know, at this house. They don't know me, which is weird because I used to buy drugs in the same neighborhood that I would patrol. But I guess they didn't recognize me. That was the thing. I was like, man, these people are going to recognize me. Nobody didn't have that khaki top on and brown bottom. They, you know that you really, yeah, they, yeah, they that's what they see. So, yeah, that's all they see. So go buy drugs and, you know, you make two, three buys and you do a search warrant, you know, arrest them. Go to the next house, develop informants, you know. So then, at the time, like I said, we were street squad and major squad. So that I, I had uh, two friends uh, that were working major squad, and they were doing like the kilo deals. So every, if we stopped the guy with the kilo, we had to turn it over to them. And I was like, man, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. So years, a couple of years go by, and you know, I'm there, you know, uh, from like '81 to about '84, and then they changed it. Hey, you know what? You guys are working three to eleven. If you come up on fifty kilos, you're keeping it. You're working it. We're like awesome. So then we started developing our own informants. You know, talking to the state attorney's office. Hey, if you got an informant, talking to robbery, talking to homicide. If you got anybody that wants to work charges off, you know, and they have some drug cases, throw them our way. Shit. So when you get fifty kilos, what the, you're you're gonna try to flip that? <clears throat> What what is higher? I mean, what I mean that's a that Go would from be a, fifty to a hundred. If you get if he got fifty, yeah. the guy that gave him the fifty just didn't have the how 50. common was fifty kilos back then? Oh gosh, okay, cocaine. Oh yeah, Worth, okay, yeah. So at the time when I went to narcotics, a kilo of cocaine was sixty five thousand dollars. A lot of money. That's 65. a substantial price. By the time I left narcotics, it was down to about twenty five. It tells yeah. you how much coke was on the street. So. But yeah, it was just. It was probably the purity too. Was freaking. Oh, it was uh, all pure. You yeah. couldn't. You, you couldn't. Just coming that. straight from the straight Medi- from Colombia. Medellin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the Everything's okay. coming straight from Colombia. And yeah. who was the boss over there in Colombia? No, at the time it was Mr. Pablo. Yeah. Okay. Well, Pablo ran the Medellin cartel, and the Orejuelas, Rodriguez Orejuelas, ran the Cali cartel. Nice. Gilberto and his brother. I forgot his other brother's name, but. So. I want to get into the violence that 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 ha- that started happening uh, and rewatching that Coke King Cowboys. I, the listeners heard me talk about that documentary a lot, and uh, and uh, and Christine, Christina, so you you got to watch that. Okay, see, so it's a great, great, yeah, great, oh, it, great it's show. phenomenal. And I'm I'm glad that you say it's great because you you were there, so oh, you know yeah. you don't stunt bullshit. The violence I, I read, it, they talked about the murder rate and. In that area, going from over a little over a hundred to five hundred, and then six hundred bodies in a year. Yes, that it was it was crazy. So, how close did you work with homicide? Because how majority of these damn murders had to be homicide related, right? Yes. So homicide would once in a while, if they had somebody that you know wanted to flip, they would call us. Hey, we have a guy that wants to flip. He's not involved in the murder, but he knows what's going on. We know that there's drugs here, so you know. We would do, you know, we would end up doing the search warrant for them or any, you know, something like that. But um, it was just there were so many murders, so many murders that um, the medical examiner, Doctor Davis, uh, Joseph Davis, may he rest in peace too. 
he would they had to get a Burger King freezer uh, 18 wheeler to put the bodies because the morgue was that full I mean a, a Burger King we used to always say man I'm never eating Burger King again <laughs> because they used to I mean they would put the bodies in there and a lot of them were John Doe's because you know it's just you know uh, gosh I remember when I was in uniform I would go out there by the uh, marine base in the in the uh, federal prison and I would just go out to the woods just to see if I would hear anything and one time I heard shots you know bam bam two shots I was like hmm so turned the lights off in my patrol car you know went down dirt road you know I couldn't see anything turned the lights on nothing got out you know and I heard some moaning looked over the railroad tracks and there was a uh, two bodies it, it turns out to be dad and son the son was still alive duct tape flex cuff behind dad was shot twice in the back the son was shot once which is weird because I only heard two shots so maybe one of them was a silencer the sh- the son was still alive so call fire rescue you know take the he had duct tape over his mouth I take the duct tape off tried to cut the flex cuffs off as best as I could you know preserve the scene and you know he ended up passing away homicide shows up and then they basically take over the case. But it would be like that. People would always be finding bodies all over Miami. You know, I remember going one time to a Sedano's, which is like a Kroger. It's a Cuban supermarket. And, you know, manager's like, hey, you know, that car's been in the parking lot for like two or three days. I said, oh, call Uniform. Call Uniform. Sure enough, they get up close. You get that smell of a decomp, dead body in the trunk of the car. So it was very, very common. So what was happening was these Marielitos, guys that came from Mario, were just killing the Colombians, killing them, t- trying to take over the drug trade to the point where the Colombians said, hey, we'll import it. We'll do a little sale on the side, but you guys, we'll let you do those sales. So all the Cuban Marios that never went to federal prison started basically selling drugs. And not just Marios. I mean, there's several individuals in Miami now that are very prominent in their business, and I'm sure that they started their business, you know, doing a little smuggling. Smart ones. Smuggle, you know, 50 kilos, smuggle 500 kilos, you make six, seven million dollars, and then you retire. You know, like I used to always tell my lieutenant, we catch the greedy ones. You know, we catch the greedy ones. The ones that are smart, they open up a business, and they live the rest of their life, you know. Yeah, so crazy. Um what did the investigations look like back then for you? What, what was your role in those? So street narcotics, two, three buys, do a search warrant. You know, two or three buys, do a search warrant, try to flip that individual, you know, flip him, get, make an informant out of him, you know. Um, and then once we went to, you know, we just started doing major cases. We didn't, I mean, we didn't want to buy, you know. I mean, we had to. A lieutenant would say, hey, we, you know, we got to, we got to get these crime stoppers would call a lot, you know, so we had to do those, but the majority of our cases we wanted to buy, go and buy kilos. So most of our informants were, you know, big, big time. I should say big time, but they were flipped. Hey, do you want to go, you want to sleep in your bed tonight with your beautiful wife? Or do you want to sleep at Dade County jail? She's going to sleep with somebody else. Take the deal. So they would say, yeah, I want to be an informant. Okay, call the state attorney's office, wake him up, have him sign a, do a contract, basically just a two-page document. He signs it, I signed it, state attorney signs it. Now I got him. He's got to work his charges off. Go home, 
sleep with your wife. I'll call you tomorrow morning at nine. We, that's how we developed informants. Omar coming. Yeah. That's how we developed informants. The money that the amount of money that was coming through. I mean, what? What? Yeah. So what? What is like a large? What is a small amount that you would get on some of these deals? A small amount, three hundred thousand. Three hundred thousand. Yeah, and, you know, back then. Back then, yeah, too, yeah, yeah. in the in the eighties, right? Yeah. So when we were bored, just to give you an idea, when we were bored in narcotics, we would I would tell my lieutenant we would say, hey, we're gonna go do phones, we're gonna go play with the phones. Back back then, we didn't have cell phones. Remember, it was just beepers. So we would go to Home Depot, sit in the parking lot, of Home Depot, watch a payphone, pull up BMW, Mercedes, whatever would pull up. And I would say, I'm, I'll be, I think I got one. I get out of the car. I get the other phone on the other side. I would dial somebody's beeper, one of my buddies' beeper, and I would just start talking and screaming. You know, hey, you motherfucker. You know, I got the money. Where's my 50 kilos? You know, I've been waiting for you, da, da, da. And the guy on the other end would go, you would peek over. You know, okay, I'm here at Home Depot. You better show up. Slam the phone, start walking back, and then you would get, you know, hermano. You know, I heard your conversation. You know, I have this in the trunk. Oh, let's go see it. Go to the phone. He shows you a trunk with five, ten kilos. You basically start walking back to your car, giving the takedown signal, which was always run your hands through the hair. And I would, you know, I would get back in my car and I would say, take him down. He's got five keys. So we would take him down, offer him a deal right there. Would you get these five keys? Oh, I got them from this apartment. Let's go. Go to the apartment. Knock on the door. Can I help you? Miami Dade Police. We'd like to do a consent search. You know, a lot of times they would think, oh, I think they're not going to find it. Okay, sign here. Bring Moose. Moose was our, our lab. Best dog I've ever seen in my life. I lost many bets with Jerry Hall with Moose. That dog could find a piece of crack in a shower head. What kind of, what kind of dog was it? He was a lab. A lab, okay. A lab. Beautiful, amazing, amazing dog. The best drug dog I've ever seen in my life. So you guys were just rocking and rolling. I mean, oh gosh! You, how many times would you flip during the day? Sometimes we would have to take turns. Can I do my dope deal? We'll we'll do yours at five, but it better be over by six because Louis has one at seven, and then this other guy wanted to do his. So it was like sometimes we would be doing two dope deals at the same time, and the, and two we had two squads that worked day, two squads that worked afternoons, three to eleven, and we would be doing dope deals separate. At separate p- parking lots. Everything was done in a parking lot. You know, we never went to anybody's house or hotel to do any drug deals. Everything was always done out in the open. Did y'all use a lot of, like, video surveillance? At the, had that gotten? If we in- had prior notice, yeah, we would call okay. tech support, and uh, Joey and his group would come out, and they would videotape it. They would give us, you know, body bugs, which is usually back then when the big cell phones came out, you know, the bricks, our body bug was actually the battery. So you press a little button, and that's you know that's how you're talking. I never liked to wear a, a wire. I just didn't like that. I never carried a gun when I was undercover because I would always tell the guys, hey, if I'm meeting you for business, I would tell them, hey, before we do anything, this is my business. This is what I make a living out of. I said, I'm not an accountant. I'm not a doctor. I'm a drug dealer. This is my business. Look, and I would pull up my shirt. I don't carry a gun. I said, guns and drugs don't mix because if we get caught with the kilo and a gun, it's life, so I don't want to go to life, away for life. So no guns. You bring me a gun, I'm out. And by the way, if I tell you be there at five, 
what if I want to wait till you till 505 if you're not there by 505 I'm done I'm gone and if you show up at 10 after 5 I'll see you tomorrow then be on time because usually when that happens it's a rip <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get into a rip in a little, in a, in a little bit uh so punctuality and no guns was your punctuality role? no guns okay and it's business when we basically i started it's a business it's a multi it's a multi-billion dollar, dollar yeah. business yeah. and that's how i treated it this is a business i'm here to make money i'm not here to rip you off I'm here to make money. And I think if I knew how to play poker, I think I would be rich because I could put that poker face, you know, and they would believe me. Yeah. So you're talking about all this nonstop work and, and, and many hours of overtime, I'm guessing. Yeah. We we did at least a drug deal a day. How, how did you juggle being a father, a husband, you know, and, and at home life? How did that look? Uh, I mean, just... You, you juggle it. I mean, um, I worked 3 to 11, so I would get up with these guys, take them to school, you know. Uh, if I had time, I would pick them up from school, you know, in my undercover car, which they loved it. Oh, you know, Pop shows up in a BMW, you know, that kind of stuff. So you just juggle it. On the weekends, you know, take the drug hat it's off. It's also like a little different because he's working in the county we're living in, right? right? So... There's a lot of flexibility there, right? You know, like I'm working. So how Quote. how aware were y'all of what he did? You know, he wasn't wearing uniform, and he was he come in looking looking like a hobo. You know, like it, or you know, you probably back well, then you probably so sharp. When I went to major crimes, you, yeah, you probably I was, yeah, I had you a dressed Rolex, apart. Yeah, I, I got you. Thousand so dollars in knew, my pocket I, all the time. And you, when he was in narcotics, and I was, I mean, I was young in elementary school, and. I knew he wasn't in, in, in uniform anymore because instead of bringing his Miami-Dade take-home vehicle, the squad car, he was now bringing a Corvette or whatever the squad, whatever the seizure car was. And so I had concept, but I didn't, I don't, I didn't understand fully what that meant. Right? I didn't know as a kid that he's going out there pretending to be a bad guy. You know, I just knew that he was taking bad guys still off the streets, but it's just in a different capacity like he wasn't in uniform anymore still thought it was cool because i knew he was still a cop but it was just a different i didn't i still hadn't quite understood yet what that meant were you kind of talk were they kind of instructed like any like hey we don't talk about what dad does any of that yeah yeah, okay yeah yeah, Yeah. i never you know we don't we don't don't talk about what i do on the weekends i used to coach him in soccer yeah yeah so at the soccer field you never know who's the other parent you know but it was saw many individuals that I but I met. also had I was also told who were going to be my friends and who weren't going to be my right. friends because he knew people already in that world where we had one friend in the neighborhood Arthur Arthur good kid he ended up being like a great kid good kid but athlete went to had a scholarship for soccer mm-hmm. and all that we we met him in the neighborhood and shortly thereafter my parents were like hey you can't be friends with him anymore. I'm like, I don't yeah. get it. Why not? We're like best friends. And uh, apparently his parents were informants for the DEA because they got popped with, with Coke. And yeah. so. And probably a lot of Coke if the DEA. Well, yeah. she, you know, it, you, you didn't want them getting tipped off that he was yeah. a narco. Yeah, that was. And it can unravel. Yeah. I mean, well, as that a, was, but as a kid, yeah. I didn't. Of course. All that stuff I didn't understand. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't get so at any. At the time, DEA. 
in Miami in customs, they didn't have that many uh, Hispanic officers. So every time they had an informant, and the you know all the drug dealers were in Spanish, they would call, hey Omar, you can you do this undercover for us? Can you do this for us? So everybody was calling, and it was either me or Louis or or Jerry. They wanted a Hispanic to do the undercover. So we had a group of DEA agents that we kind of almost formed like a task force, and then we did all their drug deals, and that's how I ended up coming home one day and telling you know their mother, my ex-wife, I said, hey, they can't go to. Arthur's house anymore and she's like why I said because I just met her and we're doing a 500 kilo deal tomorrow <laughs> so no more Arthur yeah. in our house that was crazy. and he lived like right around the block and I told her I said you need I told her you need to move you can't be my neighbor you need to move and she did because it was a rental house were you pretty nervous was there a level of being nervous being in narcotics when it come to the family during that time were you were concerned with that because it was a violent no. ass trade no you know I, n- I was never nervous because i took care of myself i made sure that they didn't discuss it with their friends what i did um we kind of kept to ourselves you know we kind of went to the movies did our you know did our stuff the friends that we hung out with were either other cops yeah. or the very ones well, that were not cops were you know the, very well vetted yeah yeah they were yeah i would we would always like if we if and even if cops even even cops if i would see something that was that didn't fit. I would tell my ex-wife. I said, "We're not going over to the house anymore." I said, "That guy's living above his means. I don't like it. it doesn't doesn't smell good." Yeah, those patrol officers are driving a Corvette. Exactly. Yeah. Or a Lamborghini. Yeah. You're doing all this work undercover. You're you're multi kilo deals. So I want to talk. What's the biggest bust that you remember having? Ten thousand kilos importation. <laughs> Is that one of the? Okay, I have several pictures. I have. I'm, I've already posted teasing this episode, and I'm going to be posting more. And I want and before this airs, it's going to be a minute before it airs. But I would like for you to, if you could find more, I take all. I'm going to try to find. Remember, okay. our pictures are Polaroids. Hey, <laughs> we didn't have cell phones, so that's what I told him. I said they're not. He texted me that he's like, yeah. "Hey, I'm <laughs> looking, but we didn't have cell phones back then." So it's it's a lot of Polaroids, and I'm like, okay, which I have, you know, I have it in my in my tack room in my barn. So I took, I was like, okay, these are Polaroids that I, I took, or crime scene. That was, crime scene would show up, and that was, it was Polaroid. So, you know, I know I'm aging myself, but you did, it was, You did it like the old time you had to put the hood on with yeah, a puff you know, of smoke. Poof, yeah, 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 you know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was Polaroid, so a lot of, you know, like those pictures of, of the cocaine lab. It was, yeah. it was Polaroid. So 10,000 kilos at 65,000 a pop. No, that was actually, we imported it for this individual at $2,000 a kilo, $2,500 a kilo. Damn. That's what we charged him to import it. Damn. And now, let me ask you this. If you remember, that that investigate 10,000 kilos, oh, did, yeah. you, did you flip that into more? No, that individual actually uh, put a hit on DEA, on the informant, and... Yeah, that, that individual was a very bad individual. Really? He yeah. was high up? Oh, yeah. he was. His brother was the, at the time, he was a senator. So that individual. Wow. So this was a DEA case, and they needed somebody to go undercover. So that individual basically um, was shown like, uh, like 4 or $5 million in a bank vault in Arizona. And he was told my daughter and her husband are the ones that, in Miami, they're my contacts. They're the ones that have the plane, so which is DEA. So we showed him a plane at Tamiami Airport. 
you know, this is what we're going to use. DEA uh, was doing the undercover, and I had I had the ears, and they basically uh, just talked. This guy owned two beautiful, beautiful restaurants at the Ford Ambassadors, which was like out in Brickell. You know, you're talking right now three, four, five million dollar apartments. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and this guy was. You can tell he had money. I mean, dressed in linen, Rolex. You know, so. They were sitting at a table. I was there watching the, the meat, you know, f- flicked his fingers. Cause the DA was asking for $1 million, uh, basically, insurance for the plane. He f- snapped his fingers. The little skinny guy got up, went 20 minutes later, pulls up in a BMW 750i, opens a trunk, and the biggest suitcase I've ever seen in my life, full of hundreds. And he says, that's yours. Take it. That's your insurance money. When are you going to bring my stuff? So hands through the hair, take him down. And the minute we took him down, he told my sergeant, Freddie Silber, you know, you don't know who you're fucking with. Very cool, calm, collected guy. DEA took him to uh, FCC over there by the zoo. One day, the DEA agent, we were at DEA office. A couple of days later, we were at the DEA office. And DA supervisor, group supervisor, came out of his office with his AR. He goes, let's go. He's trying to break out of jail. You know, there's a, there's a helicopter hovering around the prison. So we all got in our cars with ARs and just rushed over there to shoot this helicopter down. Sure enough, the helicopter landed at Tamiami Airport. And the guy was from Oregon. He says he was taking pictures of the Everglades. So they said, we need, we need this guy underground. So they took him to Phoenix, put him in a cell in Phoenix, and after that, they put wires. I think all the federal prisons after that started putting wires on the prison yard so nobody can land on the yard. And um, went to trial twice on that case, both, both times. And both times we had uh, U.S. Marshals keeping us at a house, you know, we didn't stay at, we first time we stayed at a hotel, you know, they said, hey, there's a lot of Colombians in town in, in Phoenix. Uh, I remember I had a SIG 45 and I remember sleeping with the 45 on my chest. It's the only time that I thought, man, this guy, because he took the informant's cat and crucified his cat on his front door. So we thought, man, this guy, this guy has the means to, to kill people, you know, put a hit on the informant. So, um, yeah, that was the only time that I thought, you know, and I would tell their mom, you know, hey, just be, let's be cool. Let's not go out too much. You know? did, did he get convicted? conviction on that? He got convicted the first time. He got life, got re, um, filed an appeal, had to retry him again two years later, went back to Phoenix. He got life. His brother at the time was a senator in Colombia. And then right after that, his brother left the Senate and became the leader of uh, FARC, F-A-R-C, which is the... Uh, Left, left wing guerrilla group that that were supposed to be there to fight the drug traffickers, but now they're basically, they said, well, wait a minute, let's just take over the drug traffickers' field, so they control all the coca fields. Kind of basically become in some form like the Zetas for the for sort the, of yeah. like the Zetas, okay. yeah, yeah. You know, they started as the enforcers, and then now they're they're, yeah. they're, they're taking they're, shit over. Yeah. yeah, they're taking over exactly. All right, Omar, you talked all about having all this fun in narcotics undercover. You left at some point. Why did you leave? Um, I thought I was getting stale. and Too much adrenaline. And I wanted a little bit more adrenaline. 
So I wanted to go to the SWAT team. Okay. And because I would, they they took the fun away from from us in narcotics. We used to be the ones to kick the door down. And then, uh, like I said, we had North Narcotics sent, you know, um, North headquarters in South Narcotics. I worked South Narcotics. So we used to do our, our, our own our own search warrants. We would kick the door down, you know, no training, no lead <laughs> penetrator. We'd just kick the door down and go in. That happened in Dallas too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. so, um, you know, we got involved in a That's couple right. of shootings that, you know, we shouldn't have gotten involved in, you know, shot a lot of beds. Uh, rounds go through the drywall and end up in babies' cribs in the yeah. apartment next door. So the department said... That's it. You guys are done. You have to call SWAT. So kind of took the fun out of it. So then I would have to call SWAT, and I would see them kick the door, and I was like, shit, I want to do that. So just started, you know, talking to uh, this lieutenant, Lieutenant Butner, And I was like, hey, LT, you know, I want to go to SWAT. And he's like, well, you know, you want to come to SWAT? I said, yeah. So he says, all right, you know, we're going to have a class coming up. Uh, put in for it. Transfer request. And we'll do your PT test. So put in for it, did my PT test. And sure enough, I ended up in SWAT. I want to say I went to SWAT. I was in narcotics for five years. I want to say I went to SWAT from 86 to 87, maybe a little bit of 88. Um, at first, I started walking for, uh, working for uh, uh, Terry Torrance, Sergeant uh, Terry Torrance, super guy, Um they basically put me on the uh, perimeter. I was just perimeter until, you know, got my feet wet. And then Terry got promoted to lieutenant, um, stayed in SWAT. And then they brought in uh, Sergeant Lou Battle, who used to be in SWAT years, mm-hmm. came back. He was a basically a, like a lead penetrator. So I started working for him. Uh, they made me point, you know, so I was third one in. I don't know if you guys call it point or not. So lead penetrator, secondary penetrator, so I was point. Um, and I enjoyed it. I did that for for about a year and a half. Uh, drove my sergeant crazy. I was like the senior, not the, well. I was the second senior guy in the in the in the unit, and I'm the type of guy that I speak my my mind. And he would say stuff like, um, I don't know if he was just trying to be tough or what, but I would call him out on a, a lot of stuff and. You know, we're going to run five miles today. And I was like, okay, you're 40, we're 26. So um, I remember having meetings and meetings and meetings with them, you know, and who made you the effing spokesperson of this team? And I was like, well, I mean, everybody's afraid to talk. I'm not. So he kind of encouraged me to take the corporal's test. <laughs> yeah. So Now, were there a lot of other uh, narcotics uh, detectives that, Went with you to SWAT or try to nope. try to go that way? Really, nope. the only one. SWAT was one of those things at the time that uh, everybody that was in SWAT, I knew them since since the eighties. Pete Carrado did his whole career in SWAT, never left. I mean, never left. Been shot. Oh my gosh, several times. Never left. He's one of those guys, you know, like Baines, you know, a yeah. magnet for bullet. <laughs> yeah. Um, great guy. I mean, excellent penetrator. Excellent. You know, and. Uh, so we got to train, we got to have fun. You know, I went to sniper school, so I was secondary sniper. Sometimes I was the observer, and Little Joe was um, was a sniper. Little Joe is, you know, funny story. He's a he's a diabetic. So one time we get a call of a barricaded subject, 
and uh you know little joe i'm on the back and it's hot and we got this swat gear on and it's just miserable and little joe's like you know hey sarge he's there i can see him he's in the house he's moving the curtains you know da da. so everybody's like yeah he's in the house we're gonna go get him we're gonna get him and then all of a sudden little joe's all right the tv's on and i can see he's watching cartoons Wait a minute. He's watching Disney. He's watching some Disney movie. And my sergeant looks at me, looks at his watch, and he says, has little Joe eaten anything? And I said, no. He's like, get some bananas to him right now. So I, you know, I get, I go to the truck. I grab the bananas, you know, whatever I can give him. Go over there, and I'm like, Joe, are you okay? Here, you know, get some bananas. He's like, oh, man, thanks, thanks. I said, you mind if I look through the uh, scope? Look through the scope. TV's off. There's nothing on TV. He was hallucinating, hallucinating. because of from the diabetic. So we're like, okay, Joe. You know, so I go back. Hey, Sarge. And there's nobody in that freaking house. You <laughs> so did like a relief. Sure enough, change, the guy right? that was supposed to be barricaded all of a sudden starts riding down the street on his bicycle. It was a fake false alarm, and we had been there for like six hours. <laughs> it was a false alarm. So after that, it was like, to this day, little Joe will tell you that the TV was on. He will and, not admit and, it. And cartoons were playing. Yeah, he will <laughs> not admit it. It was like, no, it was on. Sure, Joe, sure, sure. Did little right. Joe go with you to, to narcotics? Yeah, yeah I right. brought him I into narcotics, him. yeah. That's a good story good dude. about him. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah, I loved it. Loved SWAT. I didn't like working for that sergeant. You know, we just didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things, so I left. So you took the senior corporal test? I took the corporal's test, okay. passed it. They told me, you know, do you want to, we have one opening at the airport. And I was like, I'll take it. I'll go to the airport. So went to the airport as a corporal. Had a sergeant at first. Two weeks later, he retires. And Lieutenant McGilvery uh, told me, tag, you're it. So I had my own squad. Walk around, make sure that my guys were in their, in their post. Go back to the office. And what do I do now? And it was boring. And at the time, I was... That had to be torture for you. Oh, it was horrible. It was torture. I was 26 or 27, maybe 28. And already experienced all that you've experienced in yes. undercover. And I was like, oh. Drug war. Yeah. I was like, I got to get out of here. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Handled a few suicides. People would go to the last, you know, the roof of the airport and jump off. 88, I want to say it was either 88 or 89, uh, Chief Gonzalez. Bobby Gonzalez, little history behind him too. Um, he was a friend of uh, of my dad, and I he asked, I saw him one day at the airport. He was just flying with his family. He's like, "How do you like it?" I said, "I hate it. I want to leave." And he's like, "What do you want to go?" I said, "I want to go back to narcotics." He's like, "What about your corporal?" I said, five percent more money isn't is nothing to me." I said, "I'm not in this for the money," you know. So sure enough, he. Made it happen, and I went back to narcotics in 88. And I was there from 88 to 98. Damn. Real quick, Brian, you talked a little bit about you looked at – you always wanted to go to Dallas SWAT whenever you got here. And, yeah. And it was – so you remember when he was in SWAT, your story? No, no but it just was the pictures and okay. the stories about it and the, you know, the training. I'm surprised you never wanted to go to – I mean, undercover. Well, there was. I mean, there yeah. was a small part of me when I got here that wanted to do narcotics. Um, but it was, and I, it's funny you bring it up now because I wanted to talk about it. My, 
my perception of what narcotics would be was way different when I came to Texas because I knew because back when we were growing up, they had his undercover shows or undercover bus on cops because <laughs> he had recordings of it. Right, we had cops riding with us. Yeah, so I would see all these bus and there was kilos and wads of money and all this stuff and then when flash I get, money in the trunk and yeah Alexis. And, yeah. It, and so my expectation was well i guess when you go to narcotics here or when we make drug busts here they're going to be kilos of coke everywhere and all these all this dope and guns and it was like it, that wasn't it that wasn't the case here in dallas and it was you talk to some of these narcotics agents or detectives or people out in patrol that were dope chasers and to get one kilo of coke was like it was it was rare you know and you were you hit gold if you did here in in this department so i was like man it's so weird my expectation was like no 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 like if he did this in miami dade why aren't we doing this everywhere else and so i was just like uh eh. you know maybe it's it's probably because they only spoke spanish that i think that's it you know in texas it's english it's so weird como se dice shocker yeah and, and the and the funny the weird thing is I thought it was like this. The way I was working, it's like that all over the country. So I always thought, man, what I'm doing here in Miami, everybody else is doing it. Everybody's doing it. And then, Every, the rest of the country was enjoying the drugs that Miami was. It was getting exactly. farmed out. It was coming in from Colombia to no, y'all. And, and, you and know, and the weird out. thing is yeah. I would travel and I would, people would ask me you know, on vacation, oh, where are you from, Miami? Right the way, they would look at you weird. You're from Miami. Assume. Right away, right they would we, assume you were a drug dealer. Yep. My neighbors yep. are neighbors. Survivors never talked to us. They thought I was a drug dealer. You were good at what you were trying to they put out there. They thought I was a drug dealer. The they neighbor were great across people the street, too, man. Oh, yeah. They're the neighbor across people. the street, when Hurricane Andrew hit, and he saw my police car because they took all detectives, oh, yeah, yeah, and they yeah. said, you're going back to uniform, Alpha Bravo, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, no days off. And he saw my police car. He came over, and he said to me, I thought you were a piece of shit. <laughs> no, he said, man, I'm so glad you're you're an officer. And I said, yeah, what do you think I was? He goes, my wife and I would always say, this guy's a drug dealer. He drives a different car every day. He's a drug Soprano. dealer. He's a drug dealer. It's like, no, I'm a police officer, man. Just don't tell anybody else. Oh, that's great. But yeah, it's, it, and, but I thought it was like that all over the country. They thought you were bringing down the property value. By yeah. Being there. yeah. <laughs> in the, yeah. And bringing hey, in, ushering in balance. Yeah, because we would hear about cases in New York. We, we, like, we would go to New York a lot to pick up money. Guy wanted us to pick up money in New York. So customs, we formed like a task force. We ended up in a task force with, with customs. Customs rented our vehicles. You know, go down to Bremen Cadillac, pick whatever you want. So I was like, well, I want a BMW. Yeah, so go pick a BMW. Or go to the impound lot and get whatever you want. Usually we wanted rental cars. So we formed a corporation, you know, Aramar Corporation. We had our own undercover office in a warehouse district. And we had informants. My informant was a forklift driver. And we had empty pallets, empty boxes, and he would be driving as if he was moving a business. It looked like a legitimate business. Another informant was a secretary, and we all had offices. I mean, beautiful offices that Customs set up for us, you know, with the nice desk. I mean, beautiful. So we were, I mean, DEA started doing a surveillance on us because one of the neighbors called and says, hey, these guys are drug dealers. And then DEA, you know, shows up and, oh, you know, hey, Omar. Damn Miami we didn't, we didn't know it was, it was you. Yeah, I mean, it's us. Why? Oh, your neighbor called on you. Okay, call him back and tell him, don't say anything. No, no, we're not going to do anything. Everybody thought we were drug dealers because they would see, 
you know, once a month or, or once a week, we would all meet. And it was Corvettes, BMWs, Cadillacs, you know, big old trucks, you know, type that the drug dealers, you know, they would see us walking in. They, would, they were like, hmm, these guys hardly work. And they show up in these nice cars and all of a sudden a huge 40-foot container shows up. <laughs> you know, we had a container that had false walls, false bottom. And that's what we would send to Colombia and bring cocaine back. And then, and then get the money from, you know, from the guys that would go pick it up. And we would take him down in our warehouse. Yeah, that ain't going on in Dallas Narcotics. No. <laughs> but I yeah. thought yeah, this was going just, on yeah, everywhere right. in the country. Yeah. I thought this is going on in California, New York, in Texas, you know, Arizona. I thought it was a job. Well, y'all were just a, y'all were the hub. Y'all were the hub the, for yeah. the rest of the country. But, but I the, thought, ig- the ignorance of it all. Like, we didn't yeah, know any better. Course. But right? I like, thought it was like this everywhere. Yeah. Damn. That's the other thing. The mules coming in. I mean, it's incredible. How do you how do you know which person to stop? That just swallowed 250 rubbers full of 250 condoms full of cocaine. You would only get the ones that were like nervous, start sweating, you know. Start seeping through that rubber and start well, hitting them. <laughs> a lot of them had to have emergency surgery. Yeah. Or they would call us in narcotics. Hey, we found a guy. Can you? So we would respond to the airport. You know, take him to Dade County Jail the, or the hospital, Jackson Memorial Hospital, to the uh, to the jail side, and you give him a uh, basically a colander. Here, give him some x lax Doctor would give him something to, and we would you would have to you know, put a mask on and watch him take a crap in a colander and take all the stuff out. Some of them died. That, that's not a job we have anymore, Joe. You can no, I yeah, back away. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't but, fun, but you yeah. had somebody had to do yeah. it. Pick the junior guy. Hey, here. When Brian joined the CRT, that's what we had him do. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he went on to... to uh, there so was no dope involved. Though. There was no dope involved. He just did it for practice. Yeah. So <laughs> so you you learned about him going to SWAT. How did that make you feel? Now I know what my parents went through. Okay. Absolutely. So July 7th, I was in my honeymoon in Venice, Italy. And I turned the TV on and I saw the shooting. And I freaked out because I know he likes to get into shit. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, my gosh. And I started, I don't know what time it was here. I know it was maybe afternoon over there. And I was just texting everybody. I was texting him, Gabriel, Omar. I was texting Christina in Miami. Have you heard from them? I was just going crazy, going crazy. Finally, Omar, I, th- I think it was probably 2 in the morning here. I don't know. Finally, Omar responds, you know, Papa, I haven't heard from them, you know, what's going on so I told him finally I think either Brian or Gabriel responded no we're home I'm like whew you know I mean it was like a, a sigh of relief and then of course I saw what happened and I was just man this is horrible what is going on you know I'm got, I'm glad the guy got blown up to smithereens you know but it's uh, now I know what I put my parents through because when I joined the police department I never told my dad my dad would always say sure right sure right I was like, Dad, I really, I joined the police department. Yeah, right. You're scared of the dark. Oh, yeah. When I was seven, <laughs> I joined the police department. No, Dad, I joined the police department. I was living didn't, in a military-controlled state. Yeah, yeah. I was Didn't believe me until I brought home my, my blue uniforms from the academy. We wore a different uniform in the academy. It was blue. They used to call it blue shit. You're blue, you're, no, you're whale shit. Whale shit is blue, and that's what you wow. guys are. That's what they used to call us in the academy, all the training advisors. Like, I was like, yeah, sure. And I brought my uniforms, and he, we sat at the dinner table, and he looked at my mom, and he's like, did you know your son joined the police department? She's like, he's been telling you for three months. 
he just didn't believe him. Of course, he was very nervous. And then I go to narcotics. I show up to my house with an earring, a Rolex, and a BMW. And he goes, what's going on? I said, I'm in narcotics. Of course, he freaked out. And I said, if you ever see me in a bar, please don't walk up to me. Told my brother the same thing. If you ever see me in a bar, don't walk up to me. Lost a bunch of friends. Well, lost a bunch of friends when I joined the police department. Yeah. Because I knew what they were doing. They were probably smoking a little weed on the side, so whatever, you know. Lost a, lot, a bunch of friends, but hey, gained a, a bunch of friends in the police department. I loved it. I loved narcotics. Loved it, loved it, loved it. That's why I gave up my corporal bars. You know, and I was there till 98. I left in 98 because um, a certain chief drove up to me. I was walking out. I was working day shift. A certain chief walked up to me and said, you know, Omarcito, come here. And I said, it was division chief. And I said, what's up, boss? He says, you need to leave narcotics. I said, what's going on? He said, you need to leave narcotics. Trust me. Thought about it on the way home. I was like, I didn't like that look he gave me. And this chief loved me. He he was my major and my lieutenant also when I was in. Sure enough, next day I put in a trans request. I said, I want to I want to leave. Where do you want to go? Homicide. Talked to the director, Carlos Gonzalez. One day we were having Cuban coffee together. I said, hey, boss, I want to go to, I want to go to homicide. He's like, you put in for it? I said, yes, I did. He's like, when's your interview? I said, I'm waiting. He goes, okay, let me make some calls. And then he's like, so my transfer, I needed to leave narcotics because the chief kept calling me. He's like, just come next door. He was a major. Yeah, he was next door, uniform. He's like, just come to uniform. Mm-hmm. So I, I left, and I went to team police. I was, uh, I had a sergeant for about a week, and then he he left. So they told me you run team police. So I was in charge of team police, uh, working in Richmond Heights. Loved it. Put my squad out. Basically, it was a PR job. It was a decompression. I was there for about a year. Homicide called. Went to homicide, and I loved it. Loved it. So what changed? So. Back in narcotics, what changed the narcotics? So you come back, you, did you start just hit, hit the ground, ripping and running like you like oh, yeah. it was before oh, you yeah. left? And yeah, calling my old informants, hey, I'm back. If you're I'm not back working for anybody, I'm back. You know, calling, making contact with the state attorney's office, hey, I'm back in narcotics, you know. It, and you told, you, you tell uh, narcotics Omar coming when you came back? <laughs> no, he didn't say, <laughs> no, he didn't say that. No, no. So when you get back, what year was that? I got back 80... I want to say it was I was in, at the airport for about a year, eighty eight. I want to say I was okay, at the airport from like eighty seven to eighty eight. In March of ninety two. <clears throat> yes. You got into an incident. Yes, had and, an informant. Okay, I want to I'm gonna play uh, I'm gonna play uh, the video. Okay. There's actually the you were it was it was a setup it was a it was a, a buy, and and it was all wired for sound and and audio right. Yes. So I'm gonna play the video. And Does it have the timestamp? Yeah. It's, so uh, eight. Yeah. So, so the video says eight. It shows eight oh nine. Well, I moved it forward a little bit because I want to start it because uh, it's a fourteen minute video. So, if, yeah, but I want to I want to pick it up and and you're gonna I want you to kind of we're gonna listen to it. So, can I give then, you a little background on on that? Yeah, go ahead, please. So, this was an informant that was working off charges. Okay. Which is not your and I didn't develop him. Someone else had developed him. So this was the first drug deal that he brought to me. He wasn't very, um, I didn't think he was the type of informant that could actually come up with something like this. I thought he was small time. So 
it took a while to develop this. You know, oh yeah, he'll meet you, he'll meet you, he'll meet you. And then, um, so we set this up. This is our undercover office uh, in our uh, shopping center. To give you a little background on it, it was uh, fully stocked with alcohol. And we were, the meet was supposed to be at 11 o'clock in the morning. I normally gave people 11, you better be here by 11.05 or Omar's out. But, so this was, I want to say this was either a Wednesday or a Thursday. And so basically the guy didn't show up. The informant kind of basically starts telling me, oh, I can't get a hold of him. I said, okay. So it was raining outside. I'll never forget that it was pouring down rain. So we're like, hey, we're not going to go outside, get wet. Let's, so we started having some drinks. And waited, waited, waited. Basically, we were just waiting for the rain to stop. So at 7.45, we're like, hey, man, let's just go. You know, let's go home. So we start to walk out. There's a takedown team in the parking lot. We start to walk out, and I hear over the radio, hey, they're here, they're here. And the informant calls me on my brick phone. Hey, we're in the parking lot. So everybody runs back upstairs. My takedown team hides in the closet behind my office. And we're basically, okay, let's do this drug deal. So the guy walks in. He's got a very blousey shirt. So from the get-go, I'm a little hesitant. I already, um, this was one kilo, and I want to say it was 45000 I went to the bank, you know, they, you know, the bank, and they basically gave me 45000 You have to do all this paperwork and walk it through all these chiefs. And you get the money, and we're there in the office. And that's when the video starts. So the, the suspect was Colombian, right? No, he was from Dominican Republic, oh, okay. which that's the other Dominican. thing. A lot of red flags. It a lot of red flags. Yeah. So Dominicans don't really buy or sell that much dope. You know, there's a, there's a hierarchy in the drug business. It's Cubans, Colombians, and then everything else fall, falls under. Uh, we, you, we never bought drugs, multi-kilos, from an African-American because they just didn't have the connections to bring multi-kilos. So whenever we had an informant that say, hey, I have this African-American guy, he wants to buy 10 keys, he's Jamaican, the rip. And sure enough, it was always, they never had the money. So this guy shows up, you know, I'm already a little pissed because I've been waiting nine hours for him. And I mean, if you understood Spanish, you'll, it basically I call him a few names and. Okay. <laughs> so Well, I'm going to go ahead and play the video and we're going to, and we're going to watch it. Okay. And then we're going to talk about it. Okay. So he goes to the bathroom there and I'm watching him. And he's got a very blousy shirt, and he's peeing, but he's using his left hand. He's right-handed. So that, to me, was a red flag. I was like, that's weird. But what is, what what is he telling you now about the money? His, he was holding onto his gun so the gun wouldn't fall off. So my gun is in the drawer, and there's a letter opener in front of me. And I'm thinking, as this guy... What's he accusing you of right there? So right there, he's telling me that the money's fake. Oh, this is counterfeit. I used to do this for a living, and I figured, oh, here it comes. So he's telling me, this one's good, this one's bad. This one's good, this one's bad. I told him, I said, I guarantee you this isn't fake. I said, you've had me here for two effing hours, now you're telling me it's false? Let's not do this. So as he's talking, 
the letter opener is right in front of my thing. If he pulls a gun out, I'm just going to stab him in the neck. I'm going to jump and hit him because my gun's in a drawer. I got to open the drawer. He's like, get a machine. I said, I don't have a machine. So as you can see, his right hand, he's always doing this. He's always bringing it down to his waist. So he's moving closer. He wants me to move closer to him. Because I think he's going to grab me. And I'm not falling for it. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill this guy. I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to stab him in the neck. I'm going to kill this guy. And I told him, I'm not in the business of counterfeit money. I'm in the business of selling, buying drugs. The informant is to my right. I said, do we do this or we not? So there he leaves the office. The informant follows him. He stands at the door. And then I follow him out. I got to open the door for him. I have a key. So that's me at the doorway. And I don't, I never step out of the office. He starts to walk down the hallway. So I jump back. To, so as he's walking down the hallway, his mistake. So that's Joe Lopez. That was my sergeant. And I have my gun because I had to pull it off. So his mistake was that, that's the informant there. His mistake was he pulled his gun out, pulled his gun out with his back to me. So I took the informant, pushed him into it, into him. He thought I was the informant. He thought I was right behind him and I wasn't. So I pushed the informant into him, ran back in and... So, you, so he pulls the gun out with his back to me. That's when I pushed the informant into him. I, I never even made it out of the office. It was like, it was weird. Because I, I, I kind of sensed, I got to let him out. I have a key. It's, it's a deadbolt. You know, key, it, key on the inside, key on the outside. So when he pulls a gun out, that was his mistake. He had a two-inch um, Taurus 38. So he, he jumps and he gets behind. So picture this is my office, the long hallway, and that's the exit here, little small lobby in the corner here. So he stands in the corner taking shots at my team popping out. So as he's taking those shots, I hear in the corner his knee. So you probably don't hear it on the video, but little Joe walks in, little Joe takes a little Israeli peek, looks, and I go, Joe. And I point at the wall. And then as I'm getting my gun, Joe pops seven rounds through the, through, the, uh, through the drywall, hit him dead center mass. And the guy, you know, you hear it later on, boom, and you hear the sergeant saying, he's shot up the ass, which in court they said, you know, somebody said, oh, why did you say shoot him in the ass? And I said, that's not, so the judge was like, that's not what they said. Yeah, that was, uh, it's funny because I've seen that video, and every time I see it, I get... Uh, no, I could see. No, you no, you could see. It's it's taking you back to uh, yeah, the March of '92. I get. Uh, I'm like, ooh, okay. No, well, you could see the guy in the video working himself up. He was looking for an opportunity. Yeah, he and, was. And you know, the weird thing is, again, we gave this guy eight hours. We never do this. I mean, even the sergeant, I was like, Sarge, we we didn't learn our lesson. Fifteen minutes, five minutes. We gave this guy till eight o'clock at night. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we basically came in, and of course, homicide shows up. You know, the union attorney shows up, and internal affairs, and you know, nobody's talking to us. You know, they basically separate us. 
you know, we know the routine. Everybody's, you know, nobody was a rookie. Everybody knows the routine. Don't talk about it. And, uh, you know, I called their mom. I said, hey, probably hear this in the news, but, I said, but we got involved in a little shooting. You know, right away she's like, were you doing the undercover? Yeah, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay. Don't worry. She was four or five months pregnant at the time. I was like, it's, it's okay. I'll be home whenever they let me go home. I, I got to go give a statement, I'm sure. So remember, it felt like three days I was done at homicide, you know, and IA basically they just, then after that, you know, like the next day they told us you need to go see the police psychiatrist. Or How how did that look back then for, for Miami? For As far as like, was it another kind of a check off the box thing or did, did, did oh, no. you feel you, you needed to go talk to somebody? Yeah, yeah. At the time, yeah, I, I knew I had to. I talked to their mom a lot. Her and I, we never, we never um, kept anything from each other. I basically told her, you know, everything that was going on, and I would always tell her, you know, if you go to the supermarket, you know, if I'm with you and you see me walk away, it's not because I don't like you. It's because I see something that, or someone, you know, we're in a bar, like, like customs. The car was registered to my undercover name. I had an undercover license, undercover insurance you know omar moreno was my was my my undercover name i took the center fielder for the pittsburgh pirates omar moreno that was my undercover name i never changed it from omar because i didn't want to say oh i'm going to change my name to to jose and some guy's calling me jose and i'm not answering so you don't you you take your first name but change your last name uh in dade county i don't know if they do it here in texas but in dade county in florida if you are a cop you're you're your whole history, you don't exist. Somebody tries to run your house, they can't find it. Uh, if somebody tries to run your tag, they can't find it. Everything comes back, no information, no information. And the minute somebody tries to run your tag, you get notified. Hey, some guy up in Tallahassee or some guy in, in, in Miami Beach was running your tag. This cop in Miami Beach was running your tag. So then you got to find out what, what were you doing running my tag, you know? Yeah, I want to get into that. You mentioned that. So... On that Cocaine Cowboys documentary, it got it brought back so many memories. It had been years since I'd seen it. It had probably been at least ten years since I've watched it. But it also hit on all the the many officers that were that got in trouble for for bribery and, cor- and corruption. Oh gosh! Did, did, were, did anybody ever approach you for a bribe? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I remember. Oh, I remember one time um, we had an informant. And he had this lady. She was a sergeant in the U.S. Army. Her husband was Colombian, and he was—he had been killed in Colombia by the drug cartel. For I guess he missed a payment, lost some dope, whatever it was. But she had to work then, and she was a sergeant in the in the uh, U.S. Army. And she approached our informant and said, "Hey, I need to change all these ones, fives, and tens, and twenties to fifties and hundreds." So he he came up to us, and he we we're like, "Yeah, we can do that." We never said no. We always said, yeah, we can do that. So, you know, our sergeant's like, how are you guys going to do this? And I'm like, hey, you know what? I know someone at a bank, president of a bank. Louis knew. Louis knew the president of the bank. So we drove to the local bank. Hey, can we talk to you, Maria? She's like, yeah, sure, come on in. So we talked to her and we tell her, hey, we need to, we need 50s and 100s. We'll bring you ones, fives, and tens. I said, it's, I know it sounds like money laundering, but we are. We're going to launder money for this Colombian lady. Um, how long you want to do this for? I said, about a week. So can you get the Federal Reserve to bring you 50s and 100s? She's like, how much? I said, I don't know. We'll find out. First day, we brought her like 300000 She's like, oh, crap. 
So we did this for a week. We didn't go home. I didn't go home for a week because we had 24-hour surveillance on her. So we would take turns, you know, sleeping at the office and then checking, you know, surveilling her. You know, go home just to, hey, babe, you know, what's up? You know, all the kids, you know, and back out. And finally on Friday, we're like, let's just take her down. You know, we had DEA with us. We're, we're going to charge her with federal uh, money laundering. So DEA, uh, Renee, and I can't remember Renee's last name, but uh, Redhead Freckles from Minnesota spoke perfect Spanish. I mean, perfect Spanish. Beautiful girl spoke perfect Spanish. We finally, you know, we do the search warrant. We get the money. We, she had about, I don't know, $1.2 million in the house, something like that. And I'm talking to her in Spanish. And as we're leaving the apartment, we figure searching. She looks at me and she says, on the way to the office, in Spanish, she says, on the way to the office, if you let me go, uh, I'll, I'm going to, you have the keys to my apartment. In between the mattress, there's another $350,000. It's yours. So I looked at Renee and I said, did you understand? And she goes, and she looks at the lady in Spanish and she said in Spanish, you know, absolutely. Lady freaked out. So we charged her also with a bribery of a federal agent because I was deputized. So um, sure enough, we cut the mattress open <laughs> and there was $350,000 in the mattress. So yeah. Plenty of times. Another time, we were my lieutenant and I were working phones, and we see this old Cuban guy, you know, on the payphone, and we're like, hey, he seems kind of old. And I say old. He's probably my age now. I'm 63. He was probably 63 at the time. So, you know, we see him on the payphone. I'm like, hey, he doesn't look like a drug dealer. Hey, OT, let's just stick with him. He goes to a house, nice house, you know, nice neighborhood, comes out with a 19-inch color TV, and the lieutenant goes, damn, Omar. He's, he's, a, he's a TV repairman. So he opens the back of his truck, and he takes the box, and he throws it. And I go, LT, if that's a TV, it just broke. I said, he ain't no TV repairman. Full of money. So we pull him over down the street, you know, because we don't want to scare whoever's in the house. Pull him over. You know, I walk up to him, and I said, hey, Miami-Dade police, narcotics. You know, we saw what you were doing. Do you have any drugs in the box? And he got offended. I'm not a drug dealer, you know, in Spanish. I said, okay, so it's money. And he kind of puts his head down. I said, whose money does it belong? Kind of puts his head down. He says, I can't tell you. I said, you have more at the house? He goes, yeah. So LT called the squad. So we went back to the house. He had 350000 in a box about that. I mean, big old 19-inch, you know, the old, not not the flat screen. I'm talking the old TVs. The, yeah, the... The tube, the tube, tube yeah. yeah, which weighed about 500 pounds, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, those things. And went back in the house, and it was a four-bedroom house. Only one bedroom was being occupied, the other four bedrooms. He had uh, those six-foot picnic tables all around with money counting machines. That's all this house was used for, was just to count money. So we His own bank. So we right. impounded the money. Uh, you know, here's the property receipt. I need you to sign it. And on the bottom, he reads it. He's like, I'm not signing this. This isn't my money. Put refused, okay, easier way to, to forfeit to this money. And sure enough, the next day, we had an attorney at 9 o'clock knocking at the narcotics office. You know, I represent, uh, at the time, I think he's probably deceased now, but there was this guy named uh, Battle, Luis Jose Miguel Battle. He controlled all the bookmaking, bookmaking in, in Florida, in my, at least in Miami. This guy was mob 
I mean, I'm talking from the back in the days. He was he made his way to being the guy in Miami, and I said, okay, you know, is this money, Mister Battles? Because we knew, and right away he, well, I can't tell you who who my client is. We're not going to release the money. We kept it. So they dropped it. You guys would routinely just sit up on payphones. Oh, absolutely. Wait for shady dudes yeah. to show up and yeah. then follow them around and, and make your cases. Yeah. That's I, yeah. I I don't know how working narcotics now in Miami it's not fun because everybody has a cell phone. So you can't sit on payphones anymore. You know, but um, yeah, that's what we used to do when we were bored. Hey, LT, let's go do phones. It's like just, fishing. Yeah, it literally yeah. was like going we would to go, going, like some guys pole, would go, go to this fish. Home Depot. We would go to this other Home Depot. Just stay on point to point. If you guys see something that looks good, call us. We'll go over there and we'll help you. And at least four out of five nights, we would get some. We would get some. Cocaine, sometimes it was illegal. Sometimes it was just one time we got a <laughs> uh, funny story. So Eddie Arrett is my partner. Eddie was probably about 400 pounds. You couldn't tell he was a cop. Um, spoke broken English. I mean, hey, man, let's go eat my donut. You know, and yeah, I mean... He hardly spoke English. So there was no way. So I used to love to take Eddie undercover because nobody would think he was uh, a cop. So one time we're, we're following these Colombians and we follow them to this apartment. We knock on the apartment door and, well, we stopped them on the street and they had a pillowcase full of guns with silencers. So we're like, shit, these guys are hit people. So, you know, we handcuff them, take them back to their apartment. You know, we go in, there's four more guys and... We put him on the ground. We go, hey, you know, so now we had seven guys and it was just Eddie and I. So I go, Eddie, you go search and I'll stay, you know, watching him. You know, I had my gun on him. We only had two handcuffs. So I could only handcuff, you know, two guys together and then the other guys, you know, like this. That's it. The other three were loose. So I was like, okay, if any of you move, I'm going to kill you. Okay, I'm going to kill you. So they were like, oh, no, hermano, no, everything's fine. Third floor apartment. So Eddie, you know, hey, man, look what I just found. And he would come out with a 45 with the silence. And I was like, Eddie, just find the shit. Don't tell me what you find. Just find it and bring it out here. I said, I'm holding, you know, seven guys. I said, the squad's on his way, but, you know, with traffic, because the traffic was horrible in Miami. And we're in West Kendall. Same thing. Hey, man, look what I found. Hey, man, look what I found. And then Eddie comes out with this 45, beautiful nickel-plated gold trigger, gold hammer, you know, and it's got a silencer that's probably bigger than the gun. And Eddie takes the gun, and he points it at the guys and goes, okay, man, who's going to get it first? And one Colombian guy stood up and jumped out from the third-story building. He wasn't going to get it first. Yeah. <laughs> And I went, oh, shit, Eddie, what the fuck are you doing? So the guy jumps out, I go to the balcony, and I see him do this beautiful, beautiful, and he lands almost like a tuck and roll. I mean, the guy was like, I mean, he must have been a diver back in Colombia. He lands, but when he, when he spreads his leg, huge boulder, and he hits his ankle. And you, I, I heard it from up there, and I said, oh, he broke his leg. So I figured, I can catch him. So I go, Eddie, stay with these guys. Don't say another word. So I run. We chase the guy. Lieutenant shows up. What the F are you guys doing? Why didn't you call for backup, you know, before you search this and that? We're like, hey, Lieutenant, this just sprung on on us. Yeah, we, I mean, we had fun. It was, uh, to me, narcotics was so much fun. I know it was a job. It was dangerous. But 
I looked at it as this is the best, the most, this is the funnest job I've ever had in my life. Miami Vice hit the scene, the mo- the show. Mm-hmm. What did y'all think of that? Uh, they actually called us to be, uh, what do they call it? Onset uh, advisors. advisors. Yeah, okay. So they, um, for the SWAT part, they would take uh, this guy, uh, Nelson Oramas. And Nelson was a chief. And he was in SWAT back in the days in the 70s or 80s. So they would, he, they would use him as, a, uh, as an advisor. As a matter of fact, he retired and kept working with the show. Uh, but yeah, we would, once in a while, we would, you know, we would, uh, they would use us for, you know, a chase scene or something like that. And we would, you know, we would get involved. We never showed our face in, in TV only course, once yeah. on Cops. I showed my face one time. There was a Santeria. You know what Santeria is? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a Santeria house and... You know, they were like, "What is that, Omar?" And I was like, "Well, it's it's Cuban African uh, Cuban African religion." I said, "When the slaves were brought over from from Africa to Cuba, you know, the Catholic Church forced them into Catholicism, so they took their gods and basically just transposed their god to this one, to this saint, Saint Barbara, Saint Lazarus, Saint this." I said, "And now they practice this religion where they sacrifice chickens and goats and all that kind of stuff and." You know, they had these crocs, these metal crocs with these uh, railroad ties and railroad uh, nails. And some of them would put a handcuff in a plastic gun. And that would mean that they would be praying to their God to keep the police away. So when we hit this house, this guy had all that. So I was kind of like the Mexican Santa Muerte Mm -hmm. stuff, you know. So the guy from cops was like, hey, you know, can you take your mask off and explain to us what this is? And I was like, yeah, sure. So my sergeant's like, you're going to take your mask off? I said, who's going to watch cops? <laughs> yeah. well, two weeks later, I go undercover. This guy could have definitely easily killed me. I go undercover, and the guy from Detroit wants to buy dope. And uh, bottom line, is he didn't have any money. didn't have anything. Um, he showed me something in the trunk of the car that looked like Coke, but it wasn't, so we just... Just got the weird feeling from the guy. I was like, hey, just take him down. I think he's got a gun on him. So we took him down. Sure enough, he had four murder warrants out of Detroit. And basically when I called uh, homicide up in Detroit, they said that's what he was doing. That's what he's doing. He's killing drug dealers and t- basically ripping them off. He was going to kill you too. And he told me when we took him back to the office, he's like, you know, I was going to kill you. That's why I was trying to get you to my car. I was going to shoot you and put you in the trunk of, of my car and steal your car because that's what he would be doing up there. He would steal the drug dealer's car, the car that we caught him in. Had a different tag, but it was a stolen car out of Detroit. And uh, when we were at the office, he finally, he's sitting there and he goes, I knew you were a cop. And I said, how'd you know I was a cop? He's like, man, I was watching cops two weeks ago and I saw you. And I thought, oh, shit. You know, and these guys would call me all the time. Hey, Pop, you're on TV again. I was like, great. Yeah. What are the odds that the... Uh, drug dealing murderer was is like, watching cops. You know, I'm going to watch cops today. Yeah. Hey, right. it's research. I mean, you know, they probably looking Absolutely. at it as research. Absolutely. To, uh, yeah. See tactics and Absolutely. Yeah, I can see that. So you, I'm going to go back to something you touched on. Your your boss, your chief, basically was giving you a, a wink, wink. Look, read through the yeah, the, read through the lines, and it's there's writing on the wall to get the hell out of the narcotics. Yep. You 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 wanted to go to homicide. Yep. Yes. Why did you want to go to the homicide at that point? At that point, I already I figured, you know, I was talking to their mother, and I was like, you know, uh, I had fun. Now it's time to make money. It's time to make money, you know, build my retirement. Our retirement was 75% of our best 60 months. I figured, 
you know, we talked to my buddies in Hamidstad, and they were like, hey, yeah, we're making 180, Includes 190. Overtime. Making 180, $190,000 a year. And I was like, you're making more than the chief? Yeah, I was like, I'm going there. Well, you probably knew a lot of the hum- I mean, just because the, yeah, the drug, most of, of the murders were drug related. Yeah, I knew a lot of them. A lot of the supervisors that I knew when there were officers were now lieutenants, captains. Like my, the captain that interviewed me, you know, Captain uh, Russ Fisher, super nice guy. And his only question to me was, he knew that something was going on in narcotics. And his only question to me was, do you have any skeletons in your closet? No. I said, you can check with IA. My record is clean with IA. I said, that is one thing that I'm proud to say. I never went to IA as a subject officer, always as a witness officer, but I was never accused of beating the crap out of anybody. And if I did, you know, they deserved it. So what about homicide? I mean, I can't imagine going from what you were doing undercover to, you know, that tactical mindset, that hyper vigilant mind that you had to go in, you're going undercover, you're dealing with, you're worried about guys that are trying to rip you off in your own office to go to homicide, which is slower pace, but a lot. It's just a different style. What was the most challenging for you from going from what you were doing to putting together basically a puzzle? That was the challenge. You know, putting the puzzle together, when you do find the guy committed to homicide, is the challenge was sitting with him in an office, whether it took a day, a week. You know, you sit there until he says, I want my attorney. A lot of times, you can be there like like uh, Chavez. You know, he killed uh, Jimmy Rice. He never, we fed him for a whole week. He never asked for an attorney until he confessed. So that was a challenge. That, I had a great, great uh, trainers. I mean, the guy that first trained me in narcotics, I mean, in homicide, he had been in homicide for over 20 years. Retired, wow. retired from the police department was bored and came back to homicide. They took him straight to homicide because wealth of knowledge. And then when he finally then, he says, I'm retiring again for the second time. I My partner was uh, Steve Parr, funny guy, but great detective, great homicide investigator. And just taught me a lot of, you know, how to play with, with the guy's mind and, you know, when he says this and he, you know, and just amazing. And then I went to, you know, they, they, when you're in homicide, you do have to go to a, it's called medical, medical something homicide school. So it's uh it's 40 hours at the ME's office, just going through blood splatter. And I mean, you name it. It's so it was a, it was a great experience. I had the squad that I went to was one of the most senior squads in homicide, which for me was amazing because the guys that were teaching me and training me with just and just watching them and how they did things, I was like, wow, this is these guys are, you know, they're professional, professionals, yeah. cool, calm, collected. Nobody, nobody, there was no hurry. Like Steve would, you know, at first it was like, hey, we got a homicide. He goes, relax, the guy's dead. He's not going anywhere. Relax. And I was like, oh, okay. So it took a while for me to get in that mode of, okay, we'll get there. And we'll do our It's thing. a marathon and in a sprint. Like exactly. You, yeah. you know, okay. we'll get there. And, you know, we would get there and, you know, we would, okay, you know, start. If you were the lead, start doing your assignments. You know, you go do your area canvas. You're going to do the body. One guy does a body. You do the crime scene. And usually the lead just sits back and watches everything and talks to a couple of witnesses and starts briefing, you know, the sergeant that shows up, the lieutenant. Sometimes our major would show up. You know, one time, I, I'll never forget this. We were running out of overtime. 
you know, Dade County is running out of money. So our boss, Homicide Commander, has a meeting with every squad, eight squads from Homicide. And he says, okay, from now on, we get a Homicide at two. And the guys that are coming in at three, you guys are going to come and handle the Homicide. The, the three to 11, I mean, the seven to three squad, you're just going to stand by the body for an hour. Okay. So he said that at seven o'clock in the morning. And by 11 o'clock that morning, there was four homicides. <laughs> he came in, he said, forget about what I said at roll call. We got money. <laughs> yeah. It, was it like, magically appeared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like, okay. And, and I, I remember one time the newspaper wrote an article like an investigative article. Why is it that these guys in homicide are making so much money? And they thought we're stealing money. So like they called IA, you know, this one guy, Jim Defeaty, you know, piece of shit reporter. And uh, we, okay, have IA follow us. And they, sure enough, we worked every single hour we put in. We worked it. You know, you get a homicide on a Monday, you work it till Wednesday or Thursday till you until you have no leads, and then you still keep working it. But did you have a natural knack for talking to people, the, the suspects, just from what you did before? It just yeah, yeah I think being in narcotics and yeah. being able to interact with people and just sit down with them and you know you look at what their weaknesses is. You know, a lot of times you know it was like you know <clears> they would my mom, my mom, my mom. So you you pray on that man. You know your your mother's not going to be proud of you. You know. You need you need to come you know, you know we would come up with you know just hey you know the the truth will set you free come on tell us what happened what did you do and all the time man I you know got mad at her and I just strangled her and yeah I left her in the room for you know three or four hours I turned the air conditioner really high so she wouldn't stink I told the kids you know that mom mom has a migraine don't bother her oh okay simple like he told the story like it was you know how he killed his wife and wow did y'all have any cereal murders that you work. Okay. Yes. Uh, oh gosh, there was a serial murder. I didn't work that case. I was in narcotics at the time. I was doing su- helping them with surveillance. There was a ser- serial murder, and it turned out to be a cop. Mm. Uh, from your department? No. Okay. From another department. Um, and basically, what he was killing, he was killing uh, homosexual prostitutes. He was killing prostitutes that were dressed as women, but they were guys. And uh, his, I, I want to say, he got the electric chair. I want to say his last name was, I think they already got fried, Pardo. Was, was, did your department capture him? Oh, yeah. Okay, and, yeah. and that unit you went to? I was in work? narcotics doing surveillance yeah. on the prostitutes to see who would pick them up. But the same detectives that were there that worked that? Oh, yeah. Oh, they, knew, awesome. yeah they would always yeah. call, hey, we need narcotics to do surveillance. So okay. they would always call us, and that's how I got to know everybody. The Jimmy Rice case was a big one. Jimmy Rice was a big case. I remember that as a kid. That was huge. Talk about the Jimmy Rice case, if you don't mind. So Jimmy Rice was, you know... Uh, Young kid, mom and dad lived in the Redlands, um, in a ranch, and they had a ranch hand that they hired, recently came from Cuba, doing the Mario boat lift. His last name was Chavez. I don't remember his first name, maybe Gustavo or, he, or Hugo. And he lived in a trailer, and Jimmy Rice, he would see Jimmy Rice every day, get dropped off by the bus, and Jimmy had to take this dirt road to the family ranch. And the, the, the trailer was in the front, and one day he just basically kidnapped Jimmy, uh, sexually abused him. And, you know, Jimmy was never found. So they, you know, they called the police. My buddies are the, were the ones that handled that case. They called the police. And, uh, you know, I remember hearing, and you know, being in narcotics 
and just how this guy was just, I mean, the things that he did, and finally he confessed. He was he was actually in in homicide office for a week, never asked for an attorney. He slept in the interview room with other detectives. He got fed pizza, black beans, rice, whatever he wanted. He was and it was everything was videotaped until he gave up where Jimmy was. I think he gave up where Jimmy was at. Did he, didn't he, cut, didn't he from, chop him up? Yeah. yeah. That was just it's crazy, man. Yeah. He chopped him up and just yeah. buried him. Some, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And the, how we how the case broke was when they did a search warrant in his trailer. They found Jimmy Rice's book bag. Yeah. But yeah, Chavez. He just he as a matter of fact, he, uh, about five six years ago, he got the uh, I want to say. I don't think they fried him. I think he got the injection. I think Florida did it. Yeah, Florida did away with old Sparky, as they used to call it. Did you in your career in the uh, public corruption unit? No, robbery bureau. So oh, the robbery bureau. So, okay, so when I was in homicide, I was yeah, I was in homicide Friday afternoon. I'm getting ready to go home from the uh, homicide school, you know, death investigation school at the ME's office, and I get a phone call from my favorite chief. Once again. And he says, oh, Marcito. I said, hey, boss, what's up? You know, he never calls me for anything good. He says, uh, what are you doing? I said, I just left the uh, medical examiner's office, you know, homicide school. He's like, come by my office. I said, okay. I'm figured, oh, crap, now what? You know, I know I didn't do anything. I've been in school all week. So sit down with him, and he says, hey, I need you to go to public corruption. Now, I had heard horrible things about public corruption, because it was a task force with the FBI. So FBI at the time in Miami-Dade didn't have a really good relationship. You know, they we did all the cases. They wanted to take, you know, the fame, you know, famous but incompetent. So, <clears throat> so I was like, boss, really? He goes, yeah, it's just for six months. They just need somebody to do undercover work. They have a big case with corrections and they need somebody to do undercover work i was like oh, boss come on because trust me when you're done with that wherever you want to go you, you just name it so i'm already a homicide detective <laughs> you know? yeah exactly yeah yeah so sure enough i said when do i start he's like well today's friday um how about monday i said well what about homicide he goes i already told your sergeant you were you were going to public corruption so i had no choice he already said he's gone Voluntary. So it was a detachment, six months detachment. So I go to public corruption. I get, you know, deputized as a FBI agent, and I'm working with, or not FBI agent, U.S. Marshals deputizes us. And so I'm, I'm working public corruption cases, and at the time, the corruption in Dade County was just incredible. I mean, incredible. Uh, the director of operations at the airport, Gone. I mean, you're talking about millions of dollars of bribery. Worked a bunch of bribery cases. Followed this commissioner. Ran a soup kitchen. Hired a 98-year-old woman to run his soup kitchen. She never showed up to the soup kitchen, but she got paid. And every payday Friday, he would show up to her apartment, knock on the apartment, and he would come out with an envelope. So he was basically um, so a lot of lot of politics. Uh, involved in public corruption every time you got close to someone you would get word you know uh, plead them out that kind of stuff so we kind of knew something was going on like that lady you know she was the district or the state attorney's babysitter when she was a child 
So, and I understand we're not going to send a 92 year old woman to prison, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, other cases were, you know, contractors were being asked, you know, for $150,000, you know, a month just to put self, uh, you know, pay phones in at the airport, uh, toilets that wrap, you know, the sheet comes out and wraps themselves on the, to- on the toilet seat, just numerous, numerous cases. But then, um, I hooked up with this FBI agent T and she was, you know, um, she was major in the, uh, U.S. Marine Corps. I mean, sharp. And she's like, Hey Omar, I got this case with corrections. We have this informant. He's at the jail and he's basically whatever we want. He'll give us, he needs to work off his charges. And this guy was not getting out. This guy was a bad boy. He was not getting out. Um, so what he would tell the corrections officer, hey, my cousin's a drug dealer. He'll give you $50 if you bring me, you know, Wendy's. So it started with food. So, the, you know, the correction officer would, would meet me. I would give him a Wendy's double baconator, whatever it was that he wanted. And here's $50, all recorded. So get to the, you know, so we started with that. Then he would progress to, you know, can you bring me a weed, you know, a bag of weed, you know, bring a couple of grams, bring this, bring that. So we upgraded to an ounce of cocaine, you know, make sure. And then we had the internal affairs lieutenant from corrections basically going into the jail cell and getting the stuff from, you know, actually there was a a guard that was working with us and he would get the stuff. The marijuana, we would take uh, AstroTurf shavings and put AstroTurf shavings in the marijuana that way, when we got it back, it had the Astro Store shavings. We can say this is the same bag. It weighs the same thing that we gave him. Because we told him, you can't smoke. You can't do nothing. You know, uh, we smuggled cell phones. We smuggled a hammer. We smuggled the last thing we were going to do. And this was about a year into it. We did a year of, year's worth of undercover work. Just meeting so many corrections officers. So we had 75 indictments. The, the the director of corrections basically told us, you need to tell me when you're going to arrest all these people because... They hire new staff. Yeah. yeah. No, because I, I don't have anybody to cover. And it was... So it was it was like... And guys would... These corrections officers were... Like one guy lost his job and went to prison for four years for a BMX bike. Oh, that's all I want is a BMX bike. Okay. Go to Toys R Us, get him a BMX bike. <laughs> You know, and another guy wanted his car painted, you know, called another informant. Hey, can you paint this guy's car? You know, sure. I mean, just stupid stuff. For $50, $200, they would lose their jobs. It was like even the cook at the jail got involved because this guy just corrupted everybody at Dade County Jail. I mean, just so we would move them from floor to floor. You know, see, go to this. Okay, we're going to move you to this floor. See who you can get. And it just got to the point where we said, U.S. Attorney's Office said, enough, enough, (laughs) enough. That's it. But I think if we would have kept going, we probably would have arrested, I would say, You shut down the prison. Yeah, we would have shut down the jail for sure. Well, it it, it was something like that. It was like the Morgan Freeman's character in Shawshank. Yeah. He's the guy that could get it for you. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, this guy was, was a great informant. Great informant. I wish he would have been out when I was in narcotics. He would have been a great informant for dope. But, yeah, we ended up doing that case. and So I was there for about, like I said, I was there for six months. Uh, detachment turned into a four-year detachment. 
and then just I've had enough already. You know, T was getting uh, promoted, and I just didn't want to work there anymore. I was like, okay, I'm I'm done with this. You know, the FBI and I were just not seeing eye to eye on a lot of things, and I was just like, you know, I, what, what do we, you know, come on, let's go work. You know I mean? Come on. So I just said, no, I'm out. So I called my chief. I said, hey, boss, four years ago you told me it was a six-month six months detachment. He's like, where do you want to go? And I said, um, robbery. He goes, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you come to cargo theft? I said, cargo theft? He's like, yeah, why don't you come to cargo theft? They need somebody to do undercover. I was like, here we go again, undercover. I said, okay, because cargo theft was part of robbery. And so I said, okay, I'll go to cargo theft. So I went to cargo theft, and I was there for two years. Same thing, started calling all my informants from narcotics. I figured a crook is a crook. Instead of selling drugs, you're going to sell stolen Levi's or stolen Dell computers, stolen car parts, you name it, stolen Under Armour stolen uh, paintings. I mean, I recovered, in cargo theft, I recovered a Monet and a Rembrandt. And I saw the pictures of some that. Some Cuban yeah. rafter broke into a house in Naples, Florida, multi-billion dollar home, broke into the house, and he stole two paintings. Didn't know what he had. He wanted $100,000 for them. One was worth 5.5, the other one was worth 3.5 million. A Rembrandt and a Monet. And I was like... That was the picture that, that you yes. sent me? Okay. Lloyds of London shows up, and they said... Tell your informant the reward is $100,000. This informant was a waiter. I said, hey, if you get me these painters, paintings, they're going to give you 100000 cash. He's like, what? Man, he got on the ball, and we started doing the undercover, brought a Lloyds of London guy that knew about the paintings. He spoke Russian, and I basically told this rafter, Cuban rafter, I said, hey, I have a Russian guy that buys art, you know, and he takes it back to Russia. You know, he wants to see the paintings. So he basically said, well, the paintings are going to be in a hotel room. You you meet me in a parking lot. I said, great idea because I'm not bringing the money. So we showed him the money in a parking lot at a gas station while the uh, Lloyds of London investigator with the backup team went to the hotel, saw the uh, paintings. We They told us to take him down, and we took the guy down. Informant got $100,000 cash in front of me. He nice. stopped waiting that day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, he yeah he left he left Miami. He was like, I, I got to leave. You know, word was getting out. Oh he yeah, was, yeah. That's where you wrapped it up there nope, from in, there, in robbery. I, so, from, he kept going. <laughs> from there, I I got tired of doing undercover work, and I said, I want, I have, I have two years to retire. And I said, I want to go to robbery. I called the chief. I said, Hey, enough undercover. You're wearing work. me out with this. Yeah, yeah, I said enough undercover work. I'm burnt out. I said, I just want to go somewhere. You know. Or to relax. And he said, he's like, uh, relax? I said, yeah, boss. I said, two years, I'm done. He said, all right. Um, so he put me in robbery. And I worked uh, 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. I worked for uh, Sergeant Spiffy. Uh, I forgot his last name now. I called him Spiffy because he always wore a suit and tie. And we're like, it's too hot for a suit and tie. Worked for him for about a month or two. And... He had married, he married a younger woman. She gave birth and he was exhausted and he said, I'm retiring. He had like 30 plus years. So he retired and they said, Omar, you have the squad. So I ran the squad for a while. And then, uh, when it was, job. yeah, when it was time for, for me to retire, the lieutenant came up to me and he goes, Hey, you have six months to go. 
Uh, I said, yeah. He's like, are you retired? I said, yep. November 30th is my last day. He said, okay, I'm going to put you on days. I want you to go to the gym. I want you to work out, go have lunch, go have breakfast, and then go home. He's like, I don't want you to do anything. I said, well, I'm still on this. Uh, at the time, I was in a Rolex uh, Rolex robbery task force with the FBI also. I said, I'm in this task force with the FBI. I said, I, you know, I got an FBI car. Do I need to give that up? He goes, no, just go to the FBI office and hang out with them. So hang out with them, you know, worked a couple of Rolex cases at the time, Rolex and diamonds. So the, the uh, Jewish people were coming in from Israel, and they had diamonds strapped to them. I mean, a lot of diamonds, millions of dollars in diamonds. And these Colombian guys were just taking them off at the airport. So there was inside information. Turned out it was at, uh, we, there was a building in Miami called the Cebo Building, which is about seven, eight stories high. And that's where you basically go buy uh, jewelry. And there was the parking attendants were the ones that were basically telling the guys, hey, this guy just came out of this place. I think he's got diamonds. They would take him down the street, you know. And it's a network. Take, yeah. yeah. So we did that, I did that for a little bit and then chilled out and retired November 30th. How, how hard of a decision was that for you? I mean, you how, how hard was that for you to walk away from? At first that it was profession. hard, you know, because I was like, you know, what am I going to do? And then talk to, you know, to their mother. And she's like, oh, you can get a job, you know, doing this. I I got my degree in healthcare administration because I wanted to be a pharmaceutical rep. And then I started talking to my brother. My dad had already passed away in, in 99. Started talking to my brother about being a pharmaceutical rep. And he's like, look, right now that industry, the feds just took it down. He says, you're going to, you're not going to make the kind of money you want to make. He says, you're going to have to work 32 hours and still visit 90 doctors in a day. So it's very stressful. And I was like, well, shit, I don't want any stress. I said, I just want to chill. So at the time, I put my resume on Monster. Monster.com. I don't even know if it's still around. Put my resume on Monster. And sure enough, like two weeks before I was about to retire, I get a call from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas. Hey, we'd like for you to fly up to Texas. These guys were already here. No, just Brian. Me. Yeah, just me. Yeah, Brian was already here. Uh, but then your mom and your mom came with Omar. No, I stayed with Omar. So I interviewed, I flew up to, you know, Richardson, interview. They said, you got the job. When can you start? I said, January in January. So they said, okay, January 2nd. So I already had a job lined up, so I retired. You know, Omar was still in high school, waited for the winter term to be over. And then we flew to Texas and started working for Blue Cross Blue Shield, the most boring job in the freaking world. Looking at medical claims, I said, this is not I can't do this. So I quit. And then just Omar had a job at a golf course. So I started playing golf every day. You started truly enjoying retirement. I was 46. Wow. So I was playing golf with these 60 and 70-year-old guys. And one day I said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I can't do this. I would go home, take a nap. You know, their mom, she was like, what are you doing? She never, she never, she wasn't used to me being at home. And all of a sudden I'm at home. She's like, what are you doing? I'm going to take a nap. No, you know, go somewhere. She couldn't handle me, you know. I was like, okay. So uh, one day I was I was going to Miami to visit my, my brother, and I ran into a buddy of mine at the airport who used to work ro- uh, in robbery with me. Uh, actually, he worked RID, and RID is robbery intervention detail. They were all dressed in black BDUs, and they would just go out in plain clothes and look for robbers, people doing robberies. So... Uh, he offered me a job. He's like, hey, I'm the VP of corporate security for Nortel Networks. 
that's right. You know, the uh, I'm looking for a director for Latin America and for the the Caribbean and Latin America. Do you want the job? I said, oh, yeah. I mean, tell me about it. He goes, well, pays a hundred and you know thirty five thousand a year. I said, I take it. You know, I said, what I need to do? He goes, travel to South Latin America and South America a little bit. I said, well, I can't go to Colombia. I said, I can't go to Colombia. You know why? He goes, no, don't worry about it. We have a guy. You have you have managers in every country. I just want you to keep tabs on the managers. I said, okay. So I took the job, did that for two years, loved it. Then they filed freaking bankruptcy and laid me off. So um, found another job with Blue Cross Blue Shield a couple of months, like like two or three weeks later, no, about a month later. And I thought it was going to be an investigation, same thing. It was, no, not Blue Cross, City Mortgage. City mortgage, doing mortgage fraud investigation. That was fun, but it was just boring because it was like, I'm looking at, this is 2009, 2000, and, yeah, 2009, and I'm looking at mortgages from 2000. I said, these people don't even live in this house anymore. Oh, yeah, but do the investigation and do a, a what's it called, the incident report that the feds get. And I'm like, the feds are not going to go after these people, but you still have to do it. So... A friend of mine asked, you know, one day came up to me and she's like, hey, you know, uh, Frito-Lay is hiring security. You know, why don't you put in for it? I think you'll like that job. So I was like, came home, talked to their mom. I said, she's like, yeah, put in for it. So I put in for it and I got the job and I love it. First, it was Frito-Lay security. So I just went to Frito-Lay sites, you know, did training. Uh, at the time, it was the, the, all the employees were being robbed. So it was rob your awareness training. So we would just tell them, you know, be aware of your surroundings, you know. Don't be on your cell phone, you know, just little PowerPoint presentation that we would put. And then as we evolved in 2016, we merged with Pepsi directors. And now we do everything. I do Pepsi, Quaker, uh, no more Tropicana. We sold Tropicana, but do Pepsi, Frito-Lay, and Quaker. So um, I'm a security director for Pepsi now, and I, you know, I get to travel. At first, it was a lot of travel. Now it's like, you know, I pick and choose. After COVID, COVID was the best thing that happened to me, you know, or for my, my life, for, in my life, because, you know, got to chill out at home for a little bit. And now I get to travel when I want to travel, you know, when I do the presentations. So that's what I do. I, I have nine states that I'm responsible for and go out. Now what I do is basically active shooter. That's what everybody's doing now, yeah. active shooter training. I may be hitting you up for a job when I walk away from here. Yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, you know, like I said, I'm 63. I'm hoping to do it for another two years when I get Medicare or until they tell me, hey, it's time for you to go. Because, you know, they usually do that when you get to a certain age. They, they want to bring in new people. Yeah. They put, Young blood. Put Young people blood. out the pasture. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm good. Hey. So, I have a, I have a uh, question for Brian, though. I mean, it, well, it's, I want to I give you the opportunity Tell this man what he's meant to you. And then now your journey and your law enforcement career, he can sit back from his director position and watch you grow. What What is his tutelage and his mentorship meant to you? It's meant everything, really. And, uh, I mean, he knows that. You guys know that. It sucks because I feel like I'm going to get emotional. No, but you're good. That's not what I'm trying to do. Yeah, right. Um <laughs> Ever since I was a kid, you know, watching him in his uniform or hearing his stories, and I was like, damn, that's what I want to do. I want to be like that guy. And like he was saying, like everything he represented, 
never being, never going to IA, never being a bad example, always being such a great example of not just a police officer, but what a father should be. Because as ignorant as I was as a kid about the hours that he worked or the danger that he was in, I can just remember he was at all our games, school functions and shit. Yeah, missed a few, but I always tried to, you know, tell my sergeant, hey, I'm on the radio if you need me. So if they had a football game, uh, choir concert, uh, on the weekends, you know, hey, I'm, let's play so- Let's, You know, you guys want to play soccer? I'll coach you guys, you know, because I wanted to be always around them. You know, like I said, when I met them, they were three years old. You know, their dad was in and out of their life, and, you know, I figured, you know, I, I got to be a father. All of a sudden, I was immediate family when I met their mom. So, you know, I thought I got to be, a, I got to be, a, you know, be a good, be, be a good role model for for them, for my daughter, for everybody. That's just how my father taught me to be. And then, you know, they started working in loss prevention, and I always thought, now they're going to go into law enforcement. Of course. You know, they're going to go into law enforcement. They're going to go into law enforcement. Then we moved to Texas, you know, and remember him. He comes home and he's like, you know, I applied for, for, I think, what was it, McKinney, Dallas, uh, I forgot who else you applied. And I was like, like, oh, gosh. You know, now my heart, you know, I'm thinking, you know, and I pray every day that nothing, you know, I remember when they first got out of the academy, I was like, hey, can I ride with you? So, you know, and it's funny because, I tell people having twins is is a blessing. I call I, I think it's a blessing because they're identical twins, but they're so different, so different. And I remember riding with Brian first, and this guy reminds me so much of me when I was his age, and that's what scared me. That's what scared me. I was like, man, you know, I got lucky. I did some crazy shit, and now he's doing the same thing. Different yeah. era. Different era, you know, less respect. So I rode with him, and it was, you know, he was, you know, we're, I remember chasing dope, chasing dope with him. And then I rode with Gabriel, and Gabriel had a completely different mindset. Gabriel's out there looking for, hey, this guy's a burglar. Yeah, so at first, we you know, when they, I don't worry as much now because they're supervisors. I kind of do worry for him. I mean, Gabriel's, you know, administrative. Him, you know, I was like, today I said, are you working? He goes, yeah. I'm like, in shorts? What are you like doing? It's hot outside. So it, he's it like, oh, this hot. and that. And I'm like, oh, great. He's on the streets again. You know, oh, my gosh, you know. So, yeah, you, you do worry. I do worry. But at the same time, you know, I, I know that, you know, I believe in God. And I believe that God, God protected me. That shooting. I could, have been, I could have been dead so many times. And I think about it and I go, man, you know what? That could have gone really bad. We survived, though. And you survived, survived. But, you know, you took a gamble and you survived. And you go, hey, you know, later on you're at the office, you know, hey, Omar, good job. This And you're like, okay, yeah, I took a gamble. But you know? now look at this way. You have, you, you now you can share the story with thousands of people. Oh, yeah. And, and, and they can learn from it and they can hear a piece of history, especially Absolutely. a major part of our, our country's history when it comes to a drug war. Absolutely. The drug war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, if I would have stayed in Miami, I think I would have requested – to work at the training bureau and just train because I used to do that. I used to go and do the uh, narcotics, you know, the narcotics section for the rookies, mm-hmm. not the rookies, for the recruits. With the lifetime of 
in the roller coaster of the all the adrenaline rushes growing up in Fidel Castro's Cuba to moving to Spain to move into Miami to going into Miami Dade police and being undercover during one of the most violent times in uh, in our country's history with a drug war working corruption now having two uh, two sons in law enforcement and and thriving on this department what would you tell Brian and Gabe of how explain how proud you are of them oh gosh I mean they know I mean I'm so proud of them I'm I talk about them all the time all the time all the time people people that know me that hey you know the first thing they ask is how the twins you know because these guys have always been the life of the party we used to take in places and they were always the life of the party how the twins they're doing great you know Gabriel's a lieutenant Brian's a sergeant they're doing great really proud of them Oh, wow, even, you know, our friends in Miami, when I go back, you know, uh, friends that I've met here, uh, you know, people always like, you know, Omar, you know, you have any kids? Absolutely, man, my kids are, you know, they're cops in Dallas. Oh, wow, aren't you afraid? You know, I used to be, but now I don't. I, I have faith that, you know, they, they can take care of themselves. They know what they got themselves into. They got a great level head. I mean, they've done more. I never got promoted because I never wanted to lose my Saturdays and Sundays off. I got, I love my Saturdays and Sundays off. I used to, you know, their mom and I used to go partying every Saturday. I still do. I, my, my, my current wife and I, we, we go party every Saturday. Every Saturday we go country dancing. And her kids can't believe it. They're like, you guys don't stop. Oh, why? Why should I stop? Because I'm a grandpa and now I got to sit in a rocking chair and die? No. I go to the gym every day. I work out. I'm active, you know. Living life. I love living life. You know, it's a gift. We're on borrowed time. When the man upstairs opened the books and says, Omar Carrillo, you know, it's my time, it's my time. And as all I can say, I can sit there on my deathbed and say, these guys are taken care of. Got beautiful grandkids. My daughter's taken care of. I've accomplished everything. You know, I've done what I've, what I've accomplished. And I can, I can die a peaceful man knowing that, you know, my job here on earth has been successful and my kids are successful and that's all that that matters is that i'm a good role model for them for my grandkids now and absolutely and they love his ranch yeah i bet they do both both boys have said very great things about you so coming in the expectations were pretty high but you've exceeded them i mean just listening to the way you were brought up and the the things you've done throughout your life is is pretty inspiring so thank you for no, thank for you your, for your having life me. Service thank note. you for having I mean, me. This has been excellent. Like I said, you know, watching that little video kind of uh, get your me a blood little, going. Get me, a, yeah, you got my 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 blood flowing. I'm excited to get this episode out, um, and just I want I want the world, I want everybody to hear this story and and take everybody back to the 80s and 90s and and live it again. It was yeah. it was fun, and and if you can watch more of those uh, cocaine cowboys, there's another one called uh, with Willie Falcone and Sal Magluda. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are called the uh, Los Muchachos. That's what they used to call them, the boys. That was another interesting case where the informant turned out to be one of their good high school friends, and we had to sit and protect her for the trial, they, how they corrupted the jurors. And I was in public corruption at the time, and we arrested several jurors. I mean, it was it was amazing. I was like, wow, I can't believe that. You know, and then I see that on TV, and like my wife and I, we sit and she's like, "You know that guy?" I said, "Yeah, that's Weechi. That was my informant. He got away with 
murder. He was actually Griselda Blanco's hitman. And he was supposed to get the electric chair. And the only reason why he didn't get it is because he corrupted the district attorney's office secretary with phone sex. Wow. Every call that you make out of the jail is recorded. And he would tell her what to do. And she would sit there on the phone telling him what she was going to do to him and stuff like that. Her husband was a captain with the city of Miami Internal Affairs. And his attorney showed up one day and said, my client wants to plead to life in prison instead of the electric chair. This is what he's got. And the district attorney went, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so now he's going to He's probably dead already. Actually not. When they filmed that show, he was still Well, alive. I know it's on my list now to watch. Yeah. Oh, you got to watch those. Yeah, I'll watch it. You got to watch those, you know, those shows, you know, uh, when Kiki Camarena was shot, you know, in, in Mexico. I mean, I remember working with DA and those DA agents were just, and they were so pissed at the Mexican government, you know, and I was like, and then I got pissed and I was like, I'll never go to Mexico, you know, screw them. And I never did. I mean, never went to Mexico until 2016 when I met my wife. You know, never went to Mexico. But, yeah, it's just great shows. If you can watch those, the one with the muchachos, they have a race boat company. And that's how they used to import their drugs. They would send 10 boats on a regatta from Miami to Key West. Six boats would veer off, meet the mother boat, bring in, you know, 500, It's on Netflix. Keys. It's the Kings of Miami. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I saw it, and I'm going to, now it's going to be on my oh list. Oh, my gosh, but. you got to watch that. It's just, yeah. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Brian. For me. You're it's always cool. welcome. Uh, this is your third episode being on. Third, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, too bad Gabe couldn't be here. Yeah. The, you got the cooler one. Oh, absolutely. Instead. This has been on all the time. Who was cool? Who was not? Oh cool. yeah, it, that's he, always going to be. Knows. Yeah. Oh, I, I got some funny stories, man. <laughs> hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you. Mrs. A. Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you.
sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far for the gold and the blue, I'll never give up on you.